I'm running out the door. He's like, holy shit, Whitey. I heard your ass on the radio. You talking about Rumpelstiltskin and stuff. And I'm like, Rumpelstiltskin? He's like, yeah, man, you won tickets talking. And I'm like, the answer was Rasputin, dude. Not Rumpelstiltskin, but thanks. Shut up. He's doing good there, too. I know it's been a long time. You can edit that, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so we, we were thinking about the, the, the I said we, edit that out. That was just Welcome to the Plastic Posse Podcast 29th episode. My name is Scott Gentry, and I'm joined today by TJ Holler, John Bonani, and Doug Smith. How you doing? Hello, hello. I am doing well, thanks. Today, we've got a fantastic interview that I'm really excited for the Posse to hear. It's with Steve Zaloga. Steve's a legend as both a historian and as a modeler, so you're going to want to stick around for that. We also have two guests joining the Posse today. First, we have yet another one of the model geeks with us. This is a super cool dude, amazing aircraft modeler, and now he is also an IPMS award-winning armor modeler. <laughs> Andrew White, Whitey, welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. With all due respect to armor models, I, I still cannot wear that badge. I, I feel like I'm an imposter. <laughs> yeah, he's, no. he's, he's, he's full of it. That is a well-deserved award. We also have, joining us for the second time, and now, officially, as a member of the Posse, the new head of our UK Posse contingent, Ivan Jensen-Taylor. Welcome, Ivan. Hi. What a welcome. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> the crew here is going to have to figure out what you have to do as the uh, new kid on the block. got to carry, you know, the small bag or... You know, oh, by I'm, I'm sure there'll be it. things for me to do. <laughs> oh, there's going to be hazing at the next match for sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Ivan is going to be joining the rest of the Posse crew in Omaha for uh, Nats next year. So that is going to be awesome. We're going to unleash Ivan on on uh, IPMS Nationals over here in the U.S. It's going to be awesome. I I'm excited already. It's been a long time coming. We're excited to have you. So Ivan's also going to be helping us with some UK content. You'll hear more about that to come. He's going to join uh, join the crew. He'll be on some episodes. He'll be helping us do interviews. So you guys are going to hear a, a lot about him. Obviously, he's a veteran of the podcasting scene. You know, he was a member of the uh, Scale Model Shed, which was actually one of the very first podcasts I ever listened to. And you know, we talked about that a little bit when he joined us the first time. We're very, very excited to have Ivan on the crew. Thank you so much. The Plastic Posse Podcast is sponsored by Tank Craft. 
Tatecraft makes the highest quality products for the discerning scale modeler, and we are proud that they are now an official sponsor of the Triple P. So who is Tankcraft? Tankcraft makes beautiful, self-healing cutting mats that will take your bench to the next level. Not only do they look amazing, they are made to stand up to your toughest builds. Constructed from heavy-duty laminated 3mm thick PVC, they have excellent self-healing and cut-resistant properties. But the best part is the beautifully rendered blueprint-like drawings of iconic World War II vehicles printed on the front. Up armor your bench by adding a mat with a Panther or a Tiger 1 in Panzer Gray, or a T-34-85, or my personal favorite, the M4A3 Sherman in Military Green. They come in two sizes, 12 by 18 and 18 by 24, with one inch grids and centimeter borders for handy reference. Not a tank guy, not a problem. Tankcraft has you covered with their Aircrafter Series modeler mats. Take your bench to new heights with the mighty P-47D Thunderbolt, P-51D Mustang, or the venerable Spitfire Mark 5B. But wait, there's more. We've got an exclusive offer for Plastic Posse listeners only. Use the code POSSE15 at checkout for a 15% discount. So head on over to tankcraft.com. That's Tankcraft, T-A-N-K-R-A-F-T dot com and order today. Hey, your bench called. It wants a new mat. The Triple P is also sponsored by Sean's Custom Model Tools, makers of the Super Sanding Blocks. These blocks allow you to have controlled precision sanding that yields fantastic results. Head on over to Sean'sCustomModelTools.com and order a set. Thanks, Doug. Well, I think we've beat the Las Vegas NAS to death. So let's start with what's new with everyone. So we're going to start with you, Whitey. What is currently on your bench? All right. I'm still in work on the uh, Ravel Tornado. I'm at the painting stage, though. And actually, I'm, I'm about wrapped up with the painting. Uh, ready to get into probably not this weekend. I do have a show this weekend to go to, which is cool. But I need, um, may get into getting the wash onto it this weekend. At some point, you know, I've been hammering away on this thing for God since May. When I went back and looked at my notes, I was like, "How have I been working on this thing that long?" Just not a fun kit. Can't believe it's it's like something out of the seventies or eighties, man. It's not, <laughs> I don't know if Which anyone's built one of it? these things, but it's um it's the Eduard boxing of the Ravel one forty eight tornado. So and you know with that, I was like, okay, the Ravel kit, that's thing, it's fairly recent, right? And then looking at the molds, uh, you know, it's stamped 2014. So I was like, okay. I jumped into it because I'm, I'm doing all Desert Storm builds for this year, being the 30th oh, nice. anniversary. I was like, okay, I have a bunch of Desert Storm era jets in my or aircraft in my in my stash. So good reason to jump on them and, and get these things built. So that, that's what led me into, in, into building it. And uh, I, I've always wanted to do a GR1 tornado in that desert pink and all dirty and, and things like that. The photos you see of them out there just look really cool. So that was the motivation. Uh, but it's been a it's been a mojo buster. And uh, coming back from Nats, I was pretty excited to get back at it. Though I mean that that's one thing you can say about Nats is that it it you see stuff out there and it, you know all the fantastic bottles on the tables. It just motivates you to get back into it. And uh, so I come home and I was like, all right, time to just power through this thing. And get it done because um, that's how I build. Is out. I don't like to have a shelf of doom going on. I like to stick with one subject, one project, and, and see it see it through. God bless you. Once I shelf <laughs> something, seriously, yeah. Well, I mean, once I I feel like this. If I put something on the shelf, it's going to stay there probably for way too long. I've had that happen in the past, and that's why I changed my approach. So, but anyway, that's what's on the bench. Yeah, it sounds like a good approach, and. 
it'll probably be worth it. I mean, I love that desert pink with the faded roundels. I mean, it's such a great look for an aircraft. Are yeah, you doing the yeah. low vis shark mouth on it too? I'm not going to do one of the shark mouth ones. Uh, that's one thing about the Eduard release of it. They, they give you some great nose art and, and stuff to do them. I, I didn't do the shark mouth because I see a lot of those getting built. And actually, uh, if you're familiar with Genesis Designs and, and Model Craft, her site, I've been following her build closely because she has addressed a lot of the uh, shortcomings of the kit. So I, I went ahead and you know watched her videos before I jumped into it. Uh, she's doing one with the shark mouth. And then, um, you know, so I was getting, you know, you get in that point, well, okay, what markings do I want to put on this thing? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it has to do with the, whatever weapons you're going to be putting on the thing. And for me, I, I you know, one of the final options they have is uh, an aircraft from 617 Squadron, the Dam Busters. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm a big fan of Lancasters and that whole mission. So I was like, oh man, I got to do a 617 bird. So that's what I'm going to do. It's got the nose out of a pinup nose out on the front too. So that's, that's always a plus. Nice. So I, I do got to talk about your tornado real quick. There's an iconic picture out there. They're painting a nose art on a tornado, and they're using Tamiya paints. And it's yeah, a, it's a Gulf it. Warbird. Yep, I've seen that photo. That's cool. I think I have it in my, you know, I have, keep a reference library mm-hmm. like everyone else does on their computer. And pretty sure I have that photo somewhere. <laughs> it's been on the a bunch of different model sites too. Hey, look, this is what they're using. <laughs> yeah. And they were brush painting Tamiya too. So it, it turned out successful. Yeah, <laughs> black magic, man. That's black right. magic. Probably using Jet A to fit it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Is there? I mean, just throw this out to the group here. I mean, uh, starting with you, Whitey, but. Is there a better kit? I mean, is there a good kit of the GR1 that is a decent build, or is that just one of those ones where everything out there kind of has its warts? I'll be honest with you. I'm not the biggest tornado expert by any means. Um, I think Hobby Boss does one that's uh, somewhat decent. I get I get kind of lost in the different uh, variants, too. Uh, the GR1, the GR4, the IDS. I can tell you what the ADF look, looks like because it's got the long, skinny nose, the uh, intercept version. Mm-hmm. As far as kits, though, um, I think in the 48-scale realm, which is where I work, this one's probably the best, your best option. It's got, you know, yeah. drop slats and flaps. You know, it's got a decently detailed cockpit, even without the photo etch. Being the Eduard box, and I was just like, you know what, if whatever's in the box, I'll use it. So I did use the Eduard colored PE, which I kind of look at that stuff now, and I go, I'm not a fan of it, to be honest with you. I mean... If Quinta had a set out for this thing at the time, I would have went and got some of that stuff or just went with the raised plastic and did the painting. But I figured, you know what, it's the Eduard box and the stuff is here. Just use it and see what it comes out looking like. So I did. And uh, it looks it looks reasonable, but I'm, I'm picky, I guess, when it comes to cockpit detailing. And, uh, you know, you I, with that stuff, I really couldn't put a wash in there like I, like I would like to uh, and weather it. You know, so you have this grubby exterior and then this interior it's almost pristine so it just doesn't i just i'm not a fan of that stuff you've heard me talk about it before probably on our show on the model geek so it feels to me like i'm putting a decal down not that i'm doing cockpit detailing is color matching an issue with that colored photo etch stuff as well yeah so that's another factor when it comes to that stuff too um you know though again following the instructions here i just went with whatever colors they um called out which they give you mrp color call outs and also uh, mr color uh which i you know i, I use mr aqueous gunsy mr color and gunsy aqueous often so i got a pretty good stash of that so i you know i had whatever colors they were um calling out and for the desert pink i got a bottle of uh, mrp's desert pink which went down really nice i like that paint that mrp is really 
shake the bottle, shoot it. You get a nice, a nice coat after two or three passes and you're ready to go. Yeah. It self levels really good. Yeah. So Ivan, uh, what is on your bench? Well, for me, um, I've been really, really busy for the past couple of weeks. I was sent a box of about six kits. I received them last week and I was told, oh, by the way, we need them all finished, photographed and primed by the ninth. I was like, oh, right. Cool. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for that. So all week I've been, I've been blitzing through that part in the pump because one of them was attack and blitz kit. Yeah. It's, it's been, it's been a chaotic week. Luckily it's, it's all armor. So you can just slap all that together straight away, then prime it and done. Could never do that with aircraft because it's all the paint in build, paint in build. It's, it's, it's why I moved away from aircraft, but it's been stressful because although I have to do it quickly, I don't want to compromise the speed for the quality. So especially with tack and kits, there's mold lines, lots of sprue tabs, it's cleaning it all up, and especially if it's going to be like shown on social media and proper pictures taken of it, I can't be showing bad bits like that. So yeah, it took a lot of time to clean up, and the the tack and blitz kits are nice, but they do have their issues. They're not as simple click together as maybe advertised. But you know, it's it's a nice little Panzer three at the end of the day. Um, once it's primed, looks like a Panzer three. It's got nice PE uh, shirts and for the side, it's a good little model. It's just not as simple as it um, possibly could be. And the cleanup really adds to adds to the build. That is what you spend most of your time doing. But apart from that, I've I've, I've put some little resin figures together from um, is it Rado miniatures? Yeah. The little resin figures they're beautiful. Yeah. Um, so I just have to prime them, Zenith will highlight them, put them on a little base, and then that's them done. But yeah, that's that's really it. I've just been trying to get all that stuff out of the way. So once that's finished, I can actually crack on with the M4 M3 builds. I'm eagerly trying to get to, but that that work really needs to be done by yesterday, and it's. It's not done yet. So <laughs> that's me. I've been a very busy, busy couple of weeks. Doug, what about you? Well, I've been staring at this uh, new group build kit for a while, my uh, my Mini Arts M3 Grant, but uh, that one's waiting for me to do a little more work on the Spitfire group build, which I've been working on the cockpit of that little Mark I Spitfire from Tamiya. Loving that little thing. Um, of course, it's to me. Everybody knows the quality there. It's been a blast. But the other thing that's been going on is is I hear about somebody's model totals. I won't say who for the year. Like how many this guy's gotten done? And like I set a goal at the beginning of the year to have one a month, and I'm way behind. So I pulled out. I was sitting there watching TV, and I pulled out a whole bunch of the 144 scale Bandai fighters. So I, I'm working on two Tie fighters, two Tie advanced an X-Wing and a Y-Wing. And I assembled a Death Star, the little Death Star 2, and I put a little wire on the top of it so I can use it as a Christmas ornament in the tree this this year. I'm going to have a whole bunch of tree, of, of kits done in the next few weeks, and then I'll be done for the year, and I can take my time on a, on a few here and there. That's my goal. JB, I know you've been uh, busy with some other stuff, but have you gotten any model time in? Oh, man. My modeling time was taking every built kit I have putting them in Tupperware containers and driving them across the United States. So I went from PA to Denver uh, on Saturday and Sunday. I looked at the boxes. They're in my in-laws basement right now. I didn't notice any casualties. So I took about, oh boy, probably 95% of my built stuff out here. Um, Again, these are packed in large Tupperware containers with like shredded paper. And fortunately for armor, it's actually the easiest way to transport them. So 
that's what I was up to at the bench. And then I also are, I'm under contract for a house in Denver, yay, um, which I have already claimed my man cave or, you know, uh, building area, I should say. Yeah, it's uh, it's been pretty exciting. I, I will return to PA this upcoming weekend and hopefully do a little bit more building, maybe call it the last dance at my workbench before moving out to Colorado full time. But yeah, that's uh, that's what's going on in my world. JB, you did some one-to-one uh, photography today. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so I, I just got a job here in Denver. I work out near the Centennial Airport, which is a little south of town. And when I was rushing over to view the house we put a contract, uh, signed a contract on, I saw this B-17 flying over on approach to the airport. And I was like, whoa. So I Googled, uh, you know, B-17 visiting Denver, and sure enough, it was visiting Texas Raiders along with their Helldiver and then a T-6 visiting the airport until today, which today is September the 9th. And uh, I was like, I was in the office, I had a break finally, and I was like, I'm going over. And I show up and I'm like, hey, you know, are you still offering tours? It's like 2.45, they were supposed to leave at 3. And the guy at the desk is like, yeah, just don't. Just go in. Don't bother paying. And I'm like, okay, cool. Fine by me. And, uh, you know, went. And there was literally See? like. Everywhere he goes. <laughs> every single, if every one of us would have been there, we all would have had our wallets out. They would have taken our money. But JB would have been at the back of the group. And they would have been, oh, dude, just go. Just go on there. You don't, you don't need to pay. So I walk up and they're like putting stuff away. And they all got their bags out at the Bombay. And. I was like, are you still letting people inside? They're like, oh, yeah, go ahead. No problem. Just don't turn on the engines because we're leaving soon. I'm like, I ain't going to touch anything. So, but no, I had my free reign over the B-17 today, took a bunch of pictures. And just, again, I I try to support those traveling shows. You know, they're one, the Commemorative Air Force. The Collins Foundation is getting back on the road. And I know there's a few more. Uh, They travel all throughout the United States, and it's really cool. Typically, there's a bomber and then a fighter with them. But yeah, it it was a great time. And you know, it's it'd been a while since I'd seen one and climbed in one. Uh, I realized that I need to lose about, you know, 20 pounds because I can't fit through doors anymore. And going through the Bombay, it's like, it's like, oh, man, I can't even go through sideways. So I need to get my fat ass in shape. Um, so, but yeah, it was a good time. Scott, what's going on with you? So I've had a pretty good uh, couple of weeks. Uh, for three things primarily. First of all, I've been playing with uh, photography, starting to get a little bit more of the hang of that. Um, that's been kind of fun and interesting. I signed up for Adobe Lightroom and Photoshop, so I've been uh, starting to use that. So that's pretty cool. Second thing is I've been doing a lot of research. Thank you, John Murphy. Uh, he's been invaluable help, but uh, researching the M10 Achilles 2C for our uh, group build. And then the last thing is like Doug, I decided I better... Uh, get on my Spitfire. So I pulled that out. I built the uh, wheel wells, haven't assembled the wings, but got those all cleaned up and ready to go. Did a little more work in the cockpit. So kind of moving that along, not super fast, but it's going to be a nice build. And like Doug said, this to me, uh, their new tool Mark one is just, it's ridiculously good. It's just an, an absolutely, uh, I mean, it's almost perfect. I don't know how else you can say it. What about you, TJ? What are you working on? Well, um, I've been working on the Asuka kit that I got from Steve at Nats. It's, uh, I think, pretty much built. I got to put the tools on. I got to figure out the straps. I have some resin straps, but they're kind of a pain to work with. So I might do um, what Shane Smith did in his little video that he posted um, on YouTube and make some out of tape and brass rod, which I've done it with the tape. I've never added the brass rod buckle. So we'll try that maybe. And then I'm working on a mini art Austin Armored Car Indian pattern version. 
I've got the chassis and engine assembled. It's like a billion pieces. And of course, none of it's going to be seen, but it is really nice. It's really cool. Um, it's pretty neat. I didn't use all the pieces because you can't see them once you put the thing together. And that's pretty much it. That's the two main obligations. And I have some other, some other stuff I need to do. I need to finish for someone. There are a bunch of uh, Sisters of Battle from Games Workshop, just the heads. A guy I know asked me to paint like 40 of them. And I said yes, because I've known the dude for like 10 years or whatever. And he's a really nice guy. We met apparently how I meet all my friends on the internet. And uh, he reached out to me and asked me if I would do it. I was like, eh, I don't really do that anymore. But uh, since you're cool and I've known you for like 10 or 12 years, I guess I'll do it. So I need to finish that for him. That's that's pretty much it. Once I'm done with that, then I can kind of focus all my energy on getting that mini art armored car done and then working on the Sherman, which I really, really like. It's been really fun. It's my first Asuka kit, and it's been fantastic. Well, we've been talking about giving away one of the awesome sets of super sanding blocks from Sean's custom model tools. And we kind of kicked that can down the road because Nats kind of ate up our time. But we are ready to announce uh, the big winner. And the winner is Chris McLean. Congratulations, Chris. Uh, If you'll send us your address details over to our email, which is plasticpossipodcast at at gmail.com, we will get you hooked up. I need to get me some some of those things, man. I hear you guys talking about them and- uh, They're awesome. Yeah. One thing, I I mean, with, you know, trying to get a straight surface sanded is one of the biggest pains in the the ass. And sounds like these things are the thing they have for that, so. Yeah, they're they're like one of those things where- I didn't think I would need them, and then once I had them, I use them like literally all the time. Um, I love them. All right, that's it. I'm ordering some soon. As I'm done here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's one thing. One thing about podcasts. Since I started listening to them, you know, with the advent of COVID and sitting here in my basement uh, at the workbench, you know, listening to those, you know, you'd hear guys mention, you know, stuff like the sanding blocks and other tools, and I'm like, oh man, I'll swing over here and get on the internet and. Boom, I'm buying it, man, because it's all right. I, I got enough kits, like, but I need tools. I even bought a whole new toolbox during the COVID thing. I was like, you know, I'm tired of having my stuff all over my bench area. It takes up too much room. So roll away box, stuff everything in there right beside the bench, ready to go. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, we all use the sanding sanding sticks, you know, and stuff, but they flex on you. And, and it's, man, yep. it's really nice to have something that's really rigid. Yeah, definitely. Episode 29 of the Triple P is sponsored by Eric DeGleish and our Deputy Marshals, the Posse Outriders, Grant, Paul, David, Ethan, Jamie, Steve and Rick. These Posse members all help us bring you this podcast. If you would like to donate to the Posse, just head to our website, plasticpossepodcast.buzzsprout.com. In the upper right-hand corner, there's a little heart icon. Just click this and then donate any amount you would like. It is all greatly appreciated. Just a reminder, the Posse is just one of the several scale modeling podcasts. You can head over to HTTP uh, modelpodcast.com for a list of all the scale modeling podcasts and some modeling blogs as well. All right. And let's talk about feedback. We'll get into this a little later, but a majority of the feedback we got this time was regarding the new group build. We have so many people requesting to be part of this. It's really kind of humbling. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. The other night, I got two notifications within two minutes from two different guys asking to join. And it was, it was crazy. It was, it, I don't know, this is going to be a lot of fun. So anyhow, 
Uh, Sebastian Osterman has a recommendation for an interview. He'd like us to interview Hank from Sprues and Brews on YouTube. After which, after he mentioned that, he, Scott felt compelled to talk about Swedish band, rock bands with him. I don't know how, some, how somehow they left ABBA out of that. I don't know. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> then uh, Josh Orr wrote in. He said he liked the idea of the new group build, so long as it wasn't just a trophy chase. Uh, we've been pretty clear in the past about building specifically for awards, which we aren't it down for. But uh, so the feedback was uh, understanding there. Uh, but after talking to him a little bit, Scott uh, Scott convinced him to join the group build, and he'll be part of this. He's going to be doing an M3 grant in Aussie service. Bob from Charlotte, North Carolina, enjoyed the, our aircraft roundtable. He also is a huge Dune fan. He's read the books. He's watched all the movies and miniseries. He's even named one of his cats, Duncan Idaho. Uh, he'd be happy to talk Dune if we ever wanted to go that way. So that was talking about our stinger, wasn't it? We discussed Dune in depth after uh, after one of our shows. Yeah, we can talk about Dune right now if you guys want. I'm so excited. <laughs> Duncan, Idaho, TJ, I think you need another cat. No, I don't need another cat. Don't say that. <laughs> My wife, will her like cat radar probably just went off because you said that. <laughs> so when I come upstairs, she'll be like, hey, you know, I think we should get another cat. What do you think? No, no more. Three is enough. I will say that after hearing you guys talk about the Dune trailer. I jumped right on and checked it out. I've never seen the original. Don't crucify me, man. But I want to see no, this one well, coming out. You're not missing you know, anything with yeah, that original yeah. movie. Well, this you know, is the I, first time I've heard about Dune. I went and read the reviews in the Wikipedia write up on it, and and yeah, everyone slammed the old one. That come when that come on the eighties, mid eighties, sometime. Yeah, like eighty four. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I'm like, all right. They said it really didn't follow the book, and it was just dragged out and you know so i was like all right well but yeah that new trailer looks pretty fantastic and we have matt bryan from hampshire in the uk he's glad he found us he loves listening to us chatting with other guests for hours it really helps while away the hours while at the bench or working his day job the discussions he says are entertaining and enlightening he says we have such a great camaraderie that comes across very well in the podcast he would like, however, to see us. For some reason, he wants to actually view us. Uh, maybe some kind of live stream, he suggests. But uh, I don't know if you want to see that, really, Matt. Not me, at least. I'm wearing a Christmas T-shirt. <laughs> I was going to say, Scott doesn't wear pants during these broadcasts. So <laughs> yeah, he's Porky Pigging it over there. <laughs> our, our downloads just dropped 20%. <laughs> Cool. Well, that's it for our for our feedback for this week. Other than those uh, uh, requests about joining the uh, the group build, that was that was the gist of it. Speaking of group builds, I'd like to remind everyone that our three original group builds are all still going strong. We have the Ryfield Models T thirty four eighty five group build, still getting people to sign up for it. People are still building. It's still pretty active. If you want to build a Ryfield Model T thirty four eighty five, join the group. There's lots of good builds already in the group. I know JB has a whole build series on uh, his. That's really good. Uh, the whole step by step that's saved there that you can that you can see. And uh, I try to pin all of the completed builds to the top, so there should be like a a little area where all the the pin posts are, so you should be able to see. I try. I probably haven't caught them all, but I think I've got most of them. Um, so you can look at all the completed kits. Uh, the Tie Fighter group build is still going on. I think we had a couple people finish one this week, which is pretty cool. Um, and of course, uh, you already heard us mention the Bitfire group build that's still going on too. I think there was some a little flurry of activity in that group this week as well. Mine's still kind of sitting over here 
not doing anything, but uh, I'll do it eventually. I promise. So continuing the theme of group builds, we have our M3, M4 group build for NAS 2022. Holy <laughs> So we have 50 <laughs> entries already. That's 50 separate entries. That's 50 separate subjects, not 50 of the same thing, 50 different variants of an M3 Lear Grant, which I guess maybe we should have specified because I had a couple of people want to build an M3 Stuart, different kind of M3. You can thank the U.S. Army for naming everything M1 and M3 because, you know, why not? Because that's, I guess, is what they did. So, no, it is M3 Lee or Grant, same thing, and then M4 Sherman. So we did that because the Lee and Grant kind of turned into the Sherman. That's the They share a lineage. So, yeah, 50 entries, and it's awesome. There's some really cool stuff um, that's already been spoken for. I would like to call out to anyone interested in joining. We have had very little minor nation subjects like New Zealand, uh, South Africa, only a handful of Australia. I think maybe two Australian subjects, nothing South American and very little post-war too. part of the reason why we chose this is not only our M3 and M4 is cool, but their service history is decades. So with the way we have it structured for doing individual subjects, it's not just, you know, one M4. It could be even one specific type of M4 that was used by a different country and then even a different time period. Is you know, the Sherman was used up until the 1980s in frontline service in some places. And you can find a kit and they haven't changed that much. And the ones that have changed, you know, you can do that if you want. But um, yeah, if you get on... Um, like Sprue Brothers and look at star decals for M4 Sherman decals, you'll see just a, a huge list of just different different um, countries that use them. I personally picked up a whole bunch this week. I got some uh, Lebanese Shermans. I got some South African Shermans. I got some Egyptian Shermans. Uh, I think it was the Six Day War they used them. But uh, yeah, so if, if you are interested in joining, that kind of, that those subjects need some representation. Lots of American stuff, obviously, and a fair amount of Canadian stuff, too. I was actually surprised that I think after the United States, I think Canada and British are pretty much equally represented and very little Russian stuff, too, which also surprises me. So hopefully there'll be uh, some people that want to tackle some Russian Shermans. And I'd also like to point out Russians had a handful of M10s. So if you really want to do a Russian M10, you can do one. I think they had like less than 100. There are pictures of them in Russian service. They're they're extraordinarily rare, but they do exist. I'm surprised nobody jumped on the uh, Israeli version, that one that they use for quite a while. With the forgive me, non-armor guy here, but the uh, you know they. I'm not sure the version. Didn't they have one that had a really long barreled gun? Yes. So I, that's I always M- thought those things looked really cool. Is that not in M3 or M4 Sherman? It version? is. Okay. Yep. So that's the M51, and our friend Aaron is doing that. Oh, okay. He was yeah, normally was a forty-eighth armor uh, guy, so we convinced him to do a thirty-fifth scale. Another really cool variant um, that somebody's doing. Stephen Reed from the T thirty-four uh, reference group and also modeling group here on Facebook. Awesome modeler. He's going to do an Israeli uh, Sherman target uh, vehicle. It's really cool. It's basically like a Sherman hole with great big thick armored slabs on the side and their their gunners would use it for practice. So that's pretty cool. It just shows you kind of the variety of, of the entrance that we're going to have in this build. Yeah, Whitey, if you want to join us, I'll send you a Sherman kit. I have enough. So if you want to join, <laughs> I will send you. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, you should join us. That way we can yeah. get some prestige in our group uh, build. That's right. <laughs> All right, man. Send one Send one along. You twisted my arm. Look at that. Deal. How easy was 51. that? 51. 51. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Uh, yeah, I, I just want to stress that we have 50 entries in this group build in, Jeez. what, two, two weeks, two wow. and a half weeks? I want to just say thank you to everyone. It's unbelievable, the overwhelming support. And I, when someone reaches out and say, hey, I can't make it, but I'm going to ship you my model because I want to be a part of that. Like, holy cow, that's unbelievably flattering and, and just really a great sense of community. And and right now, I'll, I'll just volunteer. Since I'm driving to the Nationals, I'll coordinate and I'll work with UTJ to get those folks aligned with my address and I'll, I'll certainly get it and take it to the Nats. And then, you know, I'm happy to ship it back to you. I know I've talked to a few where I'm going to trade them something that I've built for, for their Sherman in an exchange. So, you know, I, I think maybe this is another great point about, you know, just collaboration. And it's just been really fun to see everyone coming together and like, oh, I'll build this. Oh, okay. Well, that's taken. Oh, I'll take that. It's like the most chill group build. And, and it's so motivating to see everybody like, Oh man, this is something we can all get behind. And and Scott, you had mentioned in the group, we have awesome members providing super great detail shots. I mean, you know, Spud went to went to Bovington and basically like climbed all over the Achilles for you. I mean, that kind of request doesn't come easy and super thankful for it. I'm trying to dump as much reference material I have there. So this group is really turning into something special. And, you know, I look forward to the next 50 entries. I mean, I, I don't envy TJ for, you know, uh, <laughs> sheet management, but it's just really cool. And, and if you look down the list of names, uh, you know, some people we know, some people we don't. And, and that's awesome where, you know, I, I can't wait to see the people that I'm not familiar with their work produce stuff for the group build. So it's, it's just going to be super fun. Yeah. And if anybody out there is thinking about joining the group, reach out to TJ. Um, yes, we have a lot of entrants, but like he said, there's there is a lot of of countries that aren't represented. We'll allow multiple vehicles if they have different paint schemes or you know modifications. Uh, we want to be open and welcoming. We just really want you to either be coming to Nats or get your model to Nats. You know, we just really admired the. Uh, I'm going to shout out the Amp SoCal guys again uh, for the group build that they bought uh, brought to Vegas. Um, it wasn't even so much the models, but the display, you know, they wore T-shirts around. They obviously just had an absolute blast, and that's what it's all about. Ivan, Ivan's getting on a plane and coming over, so, you <laughs> yeah, know, it's I'm, all— I'm bringing four builds with me. Yeah, there you go. So it's all about having fun and just, you know, that group. Uh, John mentioned some amazing photo references already. I'm going to shout out as well Chris Toadman-Hughes who used to work for Jacques Littlefield out at MVTF, he's uploaded, I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of shots of these vehicles. I've done photo dumps from several museums. Other people have as well. So, I mean, just by joining the group, you're going to have access to a lot of great information a lot, and, and just a, a great group of guys. So uh, kind of kind of touching back on what Scott was saying and, and what you also talked about, uh, JB, and then Going back to some of the feedback, Doug read, yes, would we like to win an award at Nats? Absolutely. I don't think there's any shame in saying that. Are we doing this to win an award? No, absolutely not. We're doing this because we wanted to put together an amazing collection of models from an amazing collection of modelers, right? And like we were, like you were saying, JB, when you look at the name, some of the names on this list, it's like, it's kind of intimidating. Like, 
some pretty good builders and it's awesome that they want to be involved in what we do. And at the end of the day, this isn't for anyone's personal glory. Like no, the posse's name is going to be on this. It's, it's everybody. And if you contribute, you've earned it just as much as everybody else. If, if we happen to win and if we don't, I mean, who, who cares? It doesn't matter. We're going to have a bunch of awesome Shermans and Lees and Grants and Grizzlies and self-propelled guns. And I mean, you name it, they're going to be there and the display is going to be cool and everyone's going to like it. And it's going to be a way to show off awesome models from good modelers that, that the end of the day is what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. Just to add to that too, you know, I haven't talked about it with, you know, the group yet, but you know, some things, uh, you know, how to reward people that are working with us, you know, may, maybe we have some memento that we send to all the group members. You know, I've even thought about, you know, if we could get photos of all the builds and, and kind of create a, you know, a book on, on the group build itself to share with everybody who's participated. And I think there's a lot of opportunities uh, to really just show what the sense of community is and, and share it with everybody. So if, if, if you have an inkling, if you're interested in any way, shape or form, please reach out to us. And if you need representation from some of those obscure countries you talked about, if you have a version that fits that that genre, that you know, that that then I'll jump on board with that. Yeah, I'll I'll awesome. do an I'll do an oddball, no no problem. Look at this, we got a we got a new convert to armor already jumping into our group. <laughs> I mean, this is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, and kind of kind of touching on some of the underrepresented subjects. Um, just reach out to me, and we'll I can help. Um, I was helping someone the other day figure out a, a subject. Um, I've got a, you know, I've got books full of Shermans with color profiles and all that kind of stuff. I'm not the, I don't know everything about Shermans, but I know, I, I know a fair amount. I, I will help anyone that asks find a kit to fit the subject that they would be interested in. I, I, you know, just anything to get extra models on the table. It really, at the end of the day, I try, I have, I think two request message requests right now from guys it, sitting in my inbox right now that I think are interested. So I will get to everybody. I, hopefully by the time this goes out, I will have talked to them, but I may not get to you right away, um, especially if I'm at work because I have access to my phone, but it's it's spotty here and there. And then, of course, I'm also working, unfortunately, so I have to worry about that. But I will get back to you and we can get uh, something figured out. Uh, yeah, so I was, I was thinking about the M3, M4 group build uh, that's going on. And I was thinking a lot of these, the majority of them are going to be probably olive drab. And it's a bit of a discussion we had before we started recording about um, different color effects or modulations or people's different interpretations of colors. And uh, it also, I was also thinking about uh, JB's build. He did two T34s, a 76 and an 85, both completely different shades of green. Bo- both of them were amazing builds, but two different colors. And I imagine they're both 4BO. So I, was just, I, I just got thinking, like, with the majority of the builds on the table being olive drab, like how everyone interprets color different because it's going to be interesting. I guarantee that say if there was 50 builds on the table, they're all going to look completely different. All the different shades are going to be different. Like they're going to be faded differently. And I just, for me, I, I was just thinking like that's, that's, it's interesting how modelers work with colors. Like uh, TJ said, if you were to just get a bottle of Tamiya olive drab and paint a small miniature in that color and leave it that it would be boring. It's just going to be a dark block of green. So it's just, I wonder what you all think about the, the way modelers interpret color and different styles of approach with color. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right on and I can't wait. I think we all see color a little bit differently. We all have paints that we like a little more than others. 
some of us modulate, some of us don't modulate, some of us black base, some of us don't. I, I know I'm just going to be hanging over the table, just geeking out, looking at these lines of different variants and uh, checking out each individual modeler's approach. Well, to use our last entry in the group builds at, at Nats, we did the T3485 and we had six entries. Yes, there were only six, but every single one of them was done differently. Not one of them looked like the other ones. That was really, a really cool thing to see. I mean, I know I've said it before, like color is what you want it to be, man. Like that's just the way it is. And I can't get behind someone telling someone that's not the right color to, to obviously to a degree. If you, if you paint it pink and you're like, this is green, that's different. <laughs> uh, but if your version of olive drab is your version of olive drab or 4BO or whatever. Okay. I mean, rock on man. Like, who cares? But, you know, it, on the same token, don't tell everyone, well, this is the only way it can be if it's your way. I mean, no, that's I, you know, Scott knows I have my way of painting olive drab and I'm not going to act like it's distinct because it's it's not. But it's the way I do it. And I've done it quite a few times. And I think it looks a certain way. That's just the way I like it. You know, and that's OK. I don't, I don't really care how anyone else does it. That's that's on them. Yeah. I'd, you know, I'd, I'd pull on whitey's input, you know, for Navy jets. I mean, how many different shades of gray are are there out there? I mean, there's, it's crazy. Each one has, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. No jet looks the same on the carrier deck. No. And then you can even, uh, to simplify it, you can go with the earlier, you know, the sixties and seventies scheme of, uh, gloss gold gray FS sixteen four forty. depending on the brand of paint you're buying, you're going to get a different shade of FS sixteen four forty in that bottle, you know, and to, talk about, okay, that's the wrong color. You know, you can look at two jets out on the flight line that are painted 16, 440 gray, but one's, one's going to be lighter. One's going to be darker. It's, you know, the environment has its effect on, on paints, not even the environment, um, over a, a very long period of time, because even, uh, when I worked on, uh, Hawkeyes 16, 440, I mixed tons of that to, you know, I, I worked in the corrosion in the paint shop and, you know, you would you would mix up a pot of paint, go out there and do some touch up, set the pot up, clean it, go have lunch, come back, mix up another pot, go out there. You're mixing two part paints. Part A, part B goes together. You would you would get a different color, not not drastic, you, you know, but to you know, step back and look, you would see that okay, me as a model of doing this stuff back in the day when I was a kid, you know, when I first came in the navy, you know, I was really into that. From a modeler's perspective, I was like, wow, look at, you know, because I can remember them talking about this at school. All right, your paint's going to look a little differently when you go out here and, you know, okay. And to go out there and actually do it and then step back and watch and go, oh, wow, that is kind of odd that the paint I painted this morning looks different than the batch I just mixed up. Well, maybe I put a little too much B in, a little less A in, who the hell knows. At the end of the day, it's gray and that's all anyone really gives a shit about. And it's well, what they really give a shit about is they, they could care what the color is. What they really, what they care about is the corrosion protection. That that that's you know first and foremost, color to a degree. But really, it's it you know when you're painting airplanes for real, it's it's unless you're talking the airliners, they like them to look pretty, of course. But um, you know, it's protecting the uh, from from the elements. Um, but paint, yeah, you could go man all day long about paint. Get Scott back in here. Scott Samo, our, our buddy from from the Model Gaze podcast. Boy, he'll he'll go on about paint and and shading and and, and all that stuff. He's, he he sees paint way differently than than anyone else I know for for certain. I think that's one thing about modeling that I really 
I, I think for me is the most inspiring and rewarding. I mean, everyone on this call right now, I've seen all of your work, whether it's in person or online, and you're all terrific modelers, but I love the different approaches. I mean, what makes John's T-34 different than Ivan's T-34 is his finish work. You know, that's the element of, dare I say, art. That's the personal piece that he brings into it, the way he weathers, the amount that he weathers um, on that individual piece is, is unique to him. You know, the, the models go together fairly similarly, you know, I mean, the, you know, the tracks and the wheels, they all glue on all kind of the same, but it's that finish work that makes it each model a really unique piece of, of work. And that's what gets me excited. That's what makes me go, oh man, you know, look what Doug did on that Millennium Falcon. Oh my gosh, how did he get that color? That's super cool. Or man, look at how TJ did that desert paint job on that Crusader. Oh my gosh, that's cool. You know, that's what gets me excited is seeing the individual interpretations and execution. I have no more to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you mentioned you mentioned that word art uh, there for a second, and um, you know, not to drive back down that rabbit hole again, but that is where you know the difference is. That's where the art of it is expressed, though. You know, I mean, I'm kind of on the side of the fence to our version of modeling is not art versus like a, a guy who can paint figures realistically and and everything like that. But but then when you start talking about what you just mentioned, that's certainly artistic talent at play for sure. I can, I, I concur. Absolutely. I kind of follow where you, where you do, Whitey. Like it, what we do is artistic. I don't know if I necessarily call at least what I do art, but I mean, you can't act like there isn't artistic talent involved in, in painting and a model and yeah. weathering a model. I mean, you're you're painting something <laughs> like when yeah. when someone hears art they think painting anyway so i mean we're halfway there right we're not sculpting we are assembling parts in a pre-described order but yeah when you get into the painting aspects of it i mean having a little bit of artistic talent is going to show in the uh, final in the finished product all right here's something that you know with coming on to speak with you uh, specifically scott sci-fi modeling and you know Doug too you you're quite the sci-fi model yourself yeah, you know, but Scott, your your piece there at the Nats, the Slave One ship was fantastic looking. Uh, but something I didn't realize in the post show or po- post Nats was, and not again, I don't want to really go back and beat up Nats again. But that sci-fi and real space is in the same category really blew my mind. I was like, wait, what? Because to me, uh, it, it's apples and oranges. There's no <laughs> ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I think Thank the you. argument was that they combine the two because otherwise you're going to get less. Of one, I think I get less real space. Hey, so be it. It's still not sci-fi. If you only get three guys entering into sci-fi into real space, then it's still real. You can't. I don't know who you know. And again, I'm not going to get into the politics of the uh, contest board or, or whoever. But um, but just seeing that those two were combined just kind of blows my mind. I mean, why don't we just put tanks and our automobiles together? They both ride on the road. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally like looking at it like that oh, i don't know it's just it's crazy. yeah no i i could i couldn't agree with you more uh i think uh i think you might have mentioned this when we were talking at nats uh but i think uh like a lunar module or something like that i think it has a lot more in common with say an sr-71 or an x1 
or something like that than it does with a Colonial Viper from Battlestar Galactica or the USS Enterprise. I just think it's really apples and oranges. Absolutely. I think yeah. you've done a really good job kind of kind of describing that. This was brought up on, I think, the IPMS Facebook group. It's something similar. And I and Whitey, I made that comment like I, I they were talking about something else. I don't even really care. But part of what the guy in his big, long original post mentioned was real space and science fiction went together. My only comment was that blows my mind that <laughs> they should be separate. Yeah. And some guy responded with, oh, well, if you do that, where where do we where do we stop? And my comment back to him was, we well, you stop right there. That's where you stop. You I just told you where you stop. You separate space and science fiction. Because he was like, well, then we're going to have to separate jets and prop. I'm like, no, no, no. They're both airplanes. But I'm yeah. sorry. An X-Wing is not the same as a Saturn V rocket. It's two diametrically opposed things. One's yeah. real. Sorry, uh, moon landing deniers. <laughs> that actually happened. It's a real thing. The Saturn V was a real thing. It flew to the moon. The X-Wing unfortunately wait, wait, is wait. not Stop real right there. Stop right there. <laughs> I might fight you on that one. That's been real to me my entire life. Uh, okay. okay. Yeah. I, me too. Me that. too. And I guess, uh, <laughs> sure. They did, I guess, build a full size one. So I guess it's technically real, but it didn't fly in space. Yeah. It, it just makes no sense to me. I kind of get it, but at the same time, I don't get it. Yeah. I mean, rockets and, and stuff, they have more to do with airplanes than they do with the enterprise. Yeah. So I, I love topics like this, but I also don't love talking about them in public. But I'm, I guess I'll take a leap of faith on this one. So no, I completely agree. I, I really do think, and it goes back to my response in one of those comment threads: is you know th this is an opportunity for IPMS. This is an opportunity to show a genre, two genres actually, and dare I say, the respect they deserve in a contest format. You know, when you had a sci-fi model or scratch build a hammerhead cruiser, that thing was unbelievable. And to think that that should go up against a real space object, as we talked about, apples to oranges, that is unfair to both models. And I understand that people say, well, you know, where does it stop this slippery, slippery slope? I, I don't think that's very fair to even cut the discussion off at that point. I think these two genres are grossly underrepresented at not only local, but national conventions as well for scale modeling. And dare I say, their popularity in the United States, at least, is inversely proportional to their, to their presence at these shows. I bet there's a lot more sci-fi modelers out there with Gundam. Gundam is the largest plastic modeling genre in the world. It is a billion-dollar industry. Uh, to think anything different, those are the facts. Sorry, that's not fake news. That's real. I, I do believe, you know, this is an opportunity for IPMS, and maybe I'll stand on my campaign soapbox right now. It, it's it's an opportunity for IPMS and something that I would love to address if elected, where we look at some of these categories that we want to grow within the hobby and give them the, you know, the, the right to, you know, play together essentially and be recognized for their work as a genre, such as sci-fi, such as real space. There, I'll stop my, my – I yield my floor. Uh, my time is up. John's uh, campaigning again. <laughs> Ivan, maybe we could ask, uh, you know, um, over at Telford, yeah. you've been to that a number of times. How, how's that handled in the UK? Yeah, you know what? Just bringing that up, the, the fact that sci-fi and real space is separate – 
first that's the first time I thought about that, and I was like, that's that's mental. That's that's weird. But I, very much like it is over there, it, over here, sci-fi and space, it, they're both very unrepresented when it comes to like the competition tables. There's a lot of club tables that display, but they display it together, and there's there's no real categorization for that. It's just a display. But when it comes to the competition, yeah, they are separate. You can walk around, competition is full, you can't get anything on any categories or tables, but you go to the sci-fi section, there's plenty of empty space. And yeah, I, 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 it's strange that one, yeah. That's surprising to me that I, I, I don't know, I, I just, I thought sci-fi was more rep- represented. Uh, most of our local shows seem to have a, a pretty big um, display of sci-fi stuff. But I think if you did separate the two, I mean, my thought there is, okay, separate the two, you might have more participation. Exactly. You, know, you got you yep. got someone scratch building a sci-fi either on either side of the house there, sci-fi or real space. And then, oh man, I'm, I don't want to be up against some guy who's got a Tie Fighter when I just spent six months building this space shuttle. Have you seen that one guy doing the space shuttle? John Chung, unbelievable. Oh, yes. unbelievable. <laughs> like he doesn't need to be competing against a guy yeah. with the scratch built hammerhead. No, no, man. You know, I mean, it's. I don't know. So I think if you did separate them, you know, the positive side of it may be that you would draw in more, yeah, uh, more more models on the table on either side of the house. And you know, Whitey, you brought something up at the local level. I think it, and I said before they're grossly underrepresented. I should caveat: certain local clubs have done that, though. What you're talking about, where oh, it's they like, have separated. Okay, yeah. Yeah, like the guy, for instance, I know Buffalo, IPMS. I don't, not necessarily real space sci fi, I guess, separating, but I guess showing more uh, acknowledgement and more options to sci fi modelers in the show. And they even do a really great job of reaching out to like the Gundam guys and girls and giving them a table at the show to build during the show. I mean, these people are, you know, a lot younger than everybody else. They're bringing a lot of stuff, a lot of good stuff. So, I, you know, I'd love to talk to them to see what they're doing at the local level to draw in that talent. And and like you said, the first step is, you know, giving them a chance to win a unique award for, for their genre. Yeah. The Gundam stuff's pretty wild. I mean, the, the Richmond show at the beginning of 2020 uh, was overflowing with Gundam. They had to get tables mm-hmm. out from the back. And the more recent Mosquito Con that we went to was uh, very well represented. And again, the demographic was a lot younger uh, yeah. people, which is great. Yeah. it's In, in the UK, there's, like, especially like we said, the local shows and the big the big scale model world, Telford show, there, there are the SIGs, like there's the Star Wars SIG. So boom, all your Star Wars builds go on that table and anyone can put them on the table. And then you've got the table just for your Saturn V, like the real space stuff. Um, that, that draws in a lot of people because they are separate. And it's like, right, well, I've built Saturn V. I'm going to keep saying that because that's the only one that comes to head right now. But I've built <laughs> that. That's where I can put it. The, the, there is a space for them for that specific genre. And when when they're just, just a display table, they are really busy, especially the Star Wars stuff. That stuff is very popular. So I'll make a bold, I'll make a bold question, I guess, or a bold statement. I don't think, with exception to this, more it's not really sci-fi. What I'm trying to say is, I don't know if a sci-fi model has ever won best in show at an IPMS nationals. I would take that bet. That has not happened. The only one I know of that could be considered sci-fi, and it really is an armor piece. Kind of, it's a. It was a hypothetical like uh, ice vehicle with a tread on the back and two skis up front. Um, that's the only thing I think from a sci-fi perspective that has ever won. And that was, again, that was more 
painted and weathered like an armored vehicle. So I, I'd be curious if I don't, if any of our listeners know if a sci-fi model has ever won Best in Show at the IPMS Nationals. I, I would I would like to give again. I don't also want to you know hammer home Las Vegas Nats, but I, I would like to say that I was pleasantly surprised with the increase in science fiction categories and then even the split they did, which was kind of cool because they did good guys and bad guys, which I thought was, <laughs> which I thought was pretty neat. Um, of course, the bad guys have all the cooler stuff. So, or, I mean, that's where Scott Slave 1 was and uh, some ATSTs and, and a bunch of other cool stuff. So that was neat. But, I, you know, it's not as many categories as I would like because I still, I still think the smartest kind of split would be weathered and clean. But at the same time, there there wasn't what I thought was a little surprising. There wasn't a lot of like um, Star Trek stuff, which locally here at Nova, I think Star Trek subjects at our model show, the model open are usually pretty well represented in the handful of shows that I've been to. Of course, it's been a couple of years, so maybe it's different. But yeah, so I just you know throw some little positivity in there that I was I was happy with the increase in science fiction and the one particular they separated Gundam into their own category. And then any other kind of mecha or suit or whatever science fiction subject was a separate category. Yeah. And, and I just want to acknowledge, I think the NCC is doing doing a good job. You know, it's all based on numbers and, you know, their decisions are based on are more people entering these categories. If they are, you know, OK, let's expand into different genres or to segregate, which is great. And, and I think that's the first step. But and again, sometimes you do have a kind of chicken and the egg scenario. Yeah. Um, I, I, I would love to see a few more categories. Uh, but, I, but I think the trend is growing, which is great. And, and IPMS being open to adding more categories is, is awesome news as well. I think this comes down to that old saying, you know, be the change you want to see. If you want to see science fiction categories at IPMS shows, bring science fiction subjects, even if that's not your primary uh, interest in modeling. You know, I know I've talked about it. It used to be my primary interest. It is no longer my primary interest, but I brought, science fiction subjects a handful of them to nats and i will continue to do so you know I, I will build a certain percentage of science fiction subjects and i will bring those to shows put them in the competition it not to win an award but to show like you know hey people want to see this kind of stuff and if you bring it and show the ipms that that we're here and and we want to grow these categories that's the best way to do it so maybe maybe we start TJ's army for the 2022 Nats and all of our posse members can bring a sci-fi model to enter, show up in force. Yeah. Kind of like a flash mob at the Nats. <laughs> <laughs> I can get behind that. That's awesome. I'll, I'll be bringing, I'll bring, yeah, I'll bring, bring an extra sci-fi. I'll, I'll get some more science fiction done before then. Yeah, then Andrew could uh, win a trophy <laughs> as uh, best sci-fi too. Yeah, round round out round yeah, out his gonna, portfolio. I'm not compete against Whitey. He already beat me once. <laughs> oh, these guys! Oh, yeah, nice. oh, yeah, started. Yeah. All right, I'm not, I'm not entering in science fiction now. Whitey's going to beat me. <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, but I'll, I, you know, I, I got a show this weekend that we're going up. We're all, we're going to head up there to PenCon. So that's something I'll, I'll take note of. I'll, I'll see what what's going on with the sci-fi table. See see what's out there. Yes, please do. Because um, I cannot make it this weekend. I was oh, going yeah. to go to that. Yeah. It is an hour from my house. Um, unfor- not unfortunately. I have a family uh, get together, so I have like aunts and uncles coming in 
Oh, yeah. Um, to Priorities. town. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it's this weekend. You couldn't do it next weekend, but it's okay. Always. But I, I yep. was disappointed. I really wanted to go to PenCon. Well, let's talk PenCon, Whitey. What what are the geeks going to be bringing? And uh, are, are all four of you uh, going? Frildo has to bow out. He had some family commitments himself. So, yeah, he, he's not going to go. Um, so it's going to be myself, uh, Scott, and Darren. We're going to head up there. Uh, actually, Darren's already up there. He's kind of making it a weekend uh, in Gettysburg with the wife and stuff. So, uh, and so Scott and I, we're going to zero dark 30 out of here from Southern Maryland drive up. It's a, you know, p- roughly two and a half, three hour drive. And uh, so we'll get up there and um, we're going to set up a table for the, for the geeks and, and possibly do some interviewing depending on who's, who's there or if people want to just come on by. And uh, as far as what we're bringing, I, I'm not going to bring anything. I brought the Nats. Uh, I just don't like to do the, obviously the tanks out anyway. So can't bring that. <laughs> but the, um, the other stuff, I, I don't like to Make the, the rounds, you know. Yeah. Do the sir. I don't like. I like to mix it up. So I'll see what I, I have. The F one seven. I have an F one seventeen and an S three Viking. That you know, I couldn't take those to NAS because they're just kind of too big. And so I, I'll probably I'll bring those. Probably a couple others. Let's see. I did a thinking back to my COVID builds here. And I, I have a, a Skyray and a, a, a Skyray, and then an A four Skyhawk as well that I I didn't bring out to NAS. So I'll probably toss those on the table too. Again. Fill up the table. Participate. Not about winning the prize, man. Show your work. Show your work. Absolutely. You guys ought to do a group build for Skyhawks. You guys are all big fans. I, I like yeah, Skyhawks too. That's but. a good idea, actually. Yeah. Because, I mean, talk about schemes and, and number of, you know, the countries that have used that thing. And that, those 48 scale Haskell Skyhawks really just fall together. You know, before the advent of Tamiya's uh, technology, the in my estimation, the, that Haskell Skyhawk was the best engineered kit on the market for a very long time. They just go together really, really nice. Yeah, it's a great airframe, lots of great schemes. A really good friend of ours, John, um, got us uh, some great access out at Nellis, and we got to see some aggressors, yep. and man, it's just they, they just they just look great in almost any scheme, really. Yeah, if we're doing a group build, I claim one of the Draken ones because they look badass. Oh, man, yeah. Uh-huh. Frildo showed me a picture earlier today. Uh, Draken just picked. They have a like a digi, digital scheme yeah. out there now that looks oh, uh, tan, yeah. tan and brown. So it's like a digital desert scheme. It looks pretty cool. Yeah, Jim Bates sent a picture of that. It's that's probably where, that's probably scheme. what Frildo picked it off from. Uh, uh, you know, if you put it on y'all's page or something like that, he probably saw it out there. He had it in our chat earlier. Earlier tonight, I'll, so. I'll ask my cousin to snap some pics. He he used to fly A fours for Draken. Now he's back with. Uh, Yousaf. Awesome, man. What a what a gig, huh? Jeez. Yeah. Lucky bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what the pay's like though. Cause I mean, I know a lot of guys that went from, you know, the Navy into the airlines and, and their first couple of years, boy, they then they're not they're not gonna paid nearly. It's all time based. Yeah, exactly, you know. I was just gonna say he talked about flying the A four and he's like he said his legs would fall asleep because it's like super cramped. It's like a 60s sport car and, you know, the canopy rail is up at like nearly your neck and he felt just really tight in it. He's used to flying the F-16 in his recliner, basically. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. You know, the big bubble top practically and the A4 was kind of a whole different ball game and it was a step back in, yeah, in time, essentially. Guys used to say that you don't strap into the A4, you strap the A4 on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> And they are. They're tight. I mean, I, we we worked on those. 
they had a ton of training uh, devices down at, at school when, when you went through mechanic school. And um, so, you know, you would jump into those things. And, and yeah, these the seats that they had in them were, you know, the, the Escapac seats, but they didn't have the, the pan and the parachute and all that stuff. So that's just the bucket. But even just sitting in the bucket, you if you were a big guy, forget about you. You were crammed in there, man. What's on Scott's mind? You know, let's let's turn the tables. Let's put you on the couch. Let's <laughs> let's. I want to talk about a good friend of mine named John Bonani <laughs> talks about slammer builds, and I've had some conversations online the last uh, couple of weeks. I think when you're working on finishing projects, finishing kits, you know, doing what Whitey's doing right now with that tornado, finishing a model is a skill. It requires muscle memory, the same as painting or anything else that requires practice. And if you don't finish models, and that's something I know a lot about, that that muscle memory gets uh, rusty. You know, you're not as good at it. And so I would just say Dr. Banani prescribed slammer builds, and uh, they're, they're great. You know, get some kits done. If you've got a great big project that's bogging you down, grab a 48 scale to me, uh, tank or a 70 second scale to me a zero or you know a kit like that and and throw one together and get that airbrush out and get one across the finish line no that's a good point scott i think one other thing i'd mention is i don't have a paint mule you know every model is a paint mule for me uh and i hey there's plenty of models to be built so i just roll with it and hey finish and keep going that's what the bottom of the tank's for i was gonna say when i start something new especially if it's a tank that's what tj just said i use the bottom I'm going to try something new. The first, the first place I put that paint or, or I start try the chipping or the, 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 the mud or whatever it's going on the bottom. Uh, slammer builds. Now, what do you, what's, what's your window there? What do you, you know, on the average, what are you you're talking a weekend thing or a week or, I mean, probably a week, I bet. Yeah. yeah. You know, okay. week, you know, for armor, it's a 148 scale Tamiya tank. Maybe it's one of their 35th scale ones. For yeah. aircraft, I could see the Tamiya Spit 48 scale. I, I don't know what, you know, the jets, they, they seem a little bit more complicated. But yeah. the F-16 looks pretty straightforward. That could be considered a slammer build if you're willing to commit to just what's in the box. Now, if you go all Scott on it, then that's a different story. And it looks like it could be on the flight line, for crying out loud. But, um, you know, it's, it's really just what's embracing what comes in the box mm-hmm. And pushing through to the finish line uh, against all odds and all distractions. <laughs> I mean, I know I've said, you know, I said previously that I stick to one project and I'll push through it. And that's that's primarily my operational standard. Uh, the X-Wing, though, that I did, sh- th- that was something that while I was waiting on something with the uh, Tornado, th- th- that X-Wing was sitting over here on the shelf. And I was like, man, I'm just going to grab that real quick and throw it together. And, you know, I did it in like an afternoon. I haven't painted it yet. Uh, I'll wait till another point in in the, either the next project or something like that, and I'll then I'll finish up the thing with some paint. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think we've you've probably heard us refer to it as a palette cleanser. You know, yeah, uh, something something that you know, uh, so some of the bigger projects I've done in the past, the uh, the S three took took a long time. So I think I in the middle of that, I want to say I put something quick together. God, I can't remember what it was. Anyway. Um, or I might have grabbed something that was. Oh, I know what it was. I have a, I do have a forty-eight scale Lancaster that's sitting up here that my dad had started years back and never finished it, and uh, you know it wound up in my possession. And I'll I'll use that thing. I'll jump on it and do a little bit of work with it. Um, you know, I'm not going 
crazy with it or nothing like that. I'm not, you know, I'm just getting paint on it. Something I'm gonna, you know, hang hang from the ceiling out here in the TV room. That'll be something that that's something that I'll grab real quick to kind of uh, recage my compass with. Well, that was a great discussion, guys. Uh, why we have Whitey here with us? We are going to do a Modeler's Minute interview with with him and uh, let you guys all get to know him. So Ivan is going to uh, do that for us. Take it away, Ivan. Thanks, Scott. Right. So, uh, Whitey, please uh, please tell us a bit about yourself. What's your background? All right. Uh, background. Let's see. Modeling background or just in general? Who, who am I? Where am I from? And all that kind of bit stuff. Bit of both. All right. Let's see. I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, born and raised there in the uh, neighborhood of Dorchester specifically. We talked about sci-fi a little bit earlier. Same neighborhood as Leonard Nimoy. That guy. <laughs> Anyhow, That's pretty cool. Yeah, so I was uh, born and raised there and um, got into modeling at a pretty young age. Uh, like most of us, uh, picked it up from from uh, my, my dad. He was a aircraft enthusiast. Spent a short time in the Air Force, but actually he worked on missiles. He was never around aviation because back in those days, you couldn't pick what you wanted to do. You could pick going into the Air Force or the Navy, vice getting drafted into the Army. So he picked to go into the Air Force because he was, had an interest in aviation. Shows up at boot camp and they run through boot camp and then it's, here you go, kid. We have these new things called ICBMs. Go work on those. And so that's what he wound up working on was early, God, I th- think they were Titans or... Whatever the first batch of ICB, ICBMs Probably were. Titans. Yeah, he was out there at uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base. He enjoyed his time and did a quick, you know, tour, four years, and then got out. You know, always had the love for aviation. So we grew up going to air shows and with him building models. And so, of course, myself and my two older brothers, we uh, picked up the hobby from him as we when we were kids. It stuck with me and, you know, the love of aviation also, my career has entirely been in aviation. The only other job I had outside of it was working at Stop and Shop when I was in high school. Uh, you know, from there it was into the Navy and into um, a, a, an aircraft maintenance and then eventually flying as an air crewman and uh, spent 20 years doing that kind of stuff. And then, you know, people always go, what the hell are you joining the Navy for if you're an aviation guy? You know, you, I, I grew up in the Top Gun era, you know, 1986, that movie came out. I graduated high school in 88, uh, but it wasn't the influence of Top Gun. If I had to point to a movie, it was probably the right stuff that really made me go, wow, I think I'm going to look at the Navy because there was that scene where Scott Glenn is uh, coming in the A4 and he lands on the uh, carrier. And that, that scene just has always stuck with me. There was a guy in my neighborhood who actually was a helicopter pilot with the reserve unit down at South Weymouth uh, Naval Air Station and got talking to him one day. And he, you know, first question he asked me is, hey, all right, kid, can you swim good? Yeah, I can swim pretty good, you know? <laughs> All right. He's like, you know, we have these guys in the back of the helicopter that, you know, they're enlisted air crewmen, and Navy's got a lot of them. So if you want to fly as an enlisted guy, Navy's the way to go, you know? Like, you know, so, okay, so that was that was about the talk, you know, right there. And I was like, okay, let me go talk to the Navy, see what they have. So that, that's how I wound up in the Navy and not the, uh, not the Air Force, which, you know, I was growing up, I was, you know, all right, I'm going to go in the Air Force and be... Mess, you know, mess around with Air Force planes, but then here I am as an 18 year old kid running around the flight deck of the uh, Coral Sea. <laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of that's my background, though. Yep. Lovely. Um, so you kind of you linked it to to what I just asked you, but um, how long have you been modeling? Uh, because obviously you said that you had a lo- uh, heavy influence yep. from uh, growing up with your with your father in the military. Um, so what what really got you into and when did you start modeling? 
I started the mid 70s. If I had to pin a date on it, probably around 75, 76, when I was probably six or seven years old, we would sit there at the kitchen table and dad would always be working on a model on the weekend nights. You know, so he used to let us, or, or me anyway, I, I can't recall what my brothers were up to, but you know, he, he would allow me to glue the bombs or the drop tanks together and things like that. So that was really my first foray into modeling. Although none of those items ever made it onto the airplane, you know, so <laughs> you can imagine how they look. The, I, I definitely know that the first model kit, you know, my dad, like the rest of us, you know, he had a stash out in the garage or down, down, in, the, down in the basement. You know, as kids, we were welcome to it. You know, it was like, hey, if you want to go build a model, go ahead. The stuff's right there. Just don't spill paint on the kitchen table uh, was about the only rule. So, but the first kit I ever built, uh, we was down the street from us, there was a flea market every Sunday morning. And some guy used to sell model kits in there. And I picked up an Airfix uh, 01 Bird Dog 72 scale. And that was the first model I ever built. I was, you know, I come home showing dad, hey, check out out. Look at what, you know, hey, have at it, kid. And, you know, it was a complete glue and paint bomb. Yeah, I, I, I can remember uh, gluing the thing together and putting the windows into that thing. And, it, you know, if you have a, you know, you're familiar with what an 01 Bird Dog might look like. Yeah, I, I, I can remember to this day the thing, the windows you couldn't even see in th- into them. They were just covered with paint and glue. <laughs> so the thing was a mess. Uh, but that was that, that was definitely the first model kit that I ever bought and built myself was was that one right there. From there it was, you know, all the old classic monogram forty eight scale World War II fighters, you know, the uh the Wildcat and the Dauntless and all those fun models with the working parts, you know, that you had to use vegetable oil to lube the the wing folds and stuff like that, you know. And we actually, we got the Model Geek guys here. We we're, were talking about, you know, we need to build a monogram 148 out of the box, painting it with a brush type of build. Like none of the, you know, like we did when we were kids. That's something we were knocking around in our heads. All right, when are we going to do it? Who the heck knows? But I, I was like, man, that, that'd be a fun little build to do. It Just grab one of the old, you know, I don't know. I think the Zero had retractable gear or the, uh, the I know the... <laughs> I know that ME109, the E model that they had, had the worst landing gear. I can remember as a kid building a bunch of those ones, and you could never set it down on the gear without the thing flopping onto its belly. So obviously, you've, you've mentioned how uh, your father was an influence in modeling, but uh, do you have any other influences in the hobby, like in, who influences your style or what you want to create next? As a kid and getting, you know, entering into my teen years, and, you know, around that era, Shepard Payne, the monogram kits again with his leaflets and stuff like that. You know, if you wanted to talk about names, you know, he he would he'd be at the top of the list. The the B-17 kit, I can remember getting one of those for Christmas one year and then having that diorama in there of, of the crash B-17. And I was like, I'm going to do that. And I, I tried and failed miserably at trying to replicate that, you know, and heating up the butter knife and making holes in the thing to, repli- you know, do the, the bullet damage and things like that. So, you know, big name wise, that was definitely an influence. And as far as my genre of modeling, you know, I'm primarily a 148 skill builder and, you know, World War II up through modern jets is what I like. You know, the monogram, the monogram kits of the 80s were fantastic for that. You know, the Phantom, the F-101, the 10, the, all the Century Series models that they had were, were uh, built them all at least twice probably. God, I, I got them sitting on my shelf out here even. Nice, because um, Shep Payne, that's, I think that's a name every bottler knows. He's influenced yeah. many, many people throughout the years. And again, you, you kind of just mentioned it for me, but um, we know you as an aircraft guy, but let's not forget you are a Nationals armor <laughs> winner. So yeah. what would you say your, uh, your subjects and your favorite genres are? 
subjects definitely, you know, if I, you know, you have jet modelers and you have prop, I couldn't tell, pick one from the other, to be honest with you. I mean, I can, I can work on a jet here today, but in the back of my head, you know, when I'm thinking about future projects right now, I, I want to build a World War II plane, something with a prop on it, something that's camouflaged and dirty. As long as it's 48 scale, I, I, why do I like 48 scale? Well, I think the detail level is at a, a place where you can, um, have have a lot of fun with whether it be doing a little bit of adding adding some scratch work to it or um, for me I enjoy doing a cockpit and so uh, you know you can you can take a forty eight scale model whether it be a jet or World War Two or Korean War era and you can you can really have a lot of fun with the painting dry brushing putting a wash in there doing the little dials on the instrument panel. You know, that, that kind of stuff to me is fun. And, and, you know, I hear people talk about, well, you're not going to see stuff when you close up the cockpit. I don't care. I still had fun doing it. You know, so th- that's that's my genre. That's what I love doing. 72 scale, I, I I don't shy away from them. I mean, I've built a few 72 scale aircraft, but it's all, you know, something multi-engine, sure. You know, I was a P3 guy, so I've got, I've built about a half dozen P3s either uh, as gifts for somebody. Um, when you're in the military, in the squadron, if someone finds out you're a model, they're going to hit you up for, hey, man, can you build me my plane from this or that? Uh, so when I was in P3s, guys found out I was a modeler and, and, you know, God knows we need a new P3 kit because I'm sick and tired of building the Hasegawa ones. They're just no fun. <laughs> You know they they they're they're okay once you get them finished up, but it's work to to get everything fitting nice. Specifically, the engine nacelles, you know, which are a giant focal point on that airplane. But the fit is just awful with those. So, cause I'm, you know, I see Zavezda coming out with these C one thirty model kits that are fantastic, and I'm like, man, do a P three. You know, so many so many operators worldwide use that thing. So many schemes out there to do. It would be a seller. So if you're listening, folks. <laughs> So you say 48, like the, the main scale. I agree. I, I think that's a perfect scale for aircraft. But is there anything in 30-second scale that takes you fancy? Uh, World War II planes, you know, just because, probably just because size. And the Tamiya 132 scale line that they have going, you know, the P-51 and the Corsair. Uh, I have the Mosquito sitting in the rafters just above my head here. Uh, that's going to be a... Um, a project right there. I'll probably set aside a year or at least eight months or something like that to build that one. How I came across that kit, it was, uh, you know, I, it's an expensive kit. You know, I'm not opposed to dropping a couple hundred bucks uh, on a kit, but I, I actually got that one for free. So that's perfect price. The guys down at the Military Aviation Museum in Virginia who operate a mosquito of that variant, I'd have to go look at the box to tell you exactly what the one with the guns in the nose, not not the one with the bombardier section in the front. So anyway, Tamiya went to their facility and used their aircraft as a uh, as the reference. And there's a booklet in there uh, with all the photos and things like that that they took. Uh, we were down there doing the air show. My next door neighbor, he does a aviation centric podcast that he drags me into. So we would go down there and we, we were interviewing with their maintenance folks and uh, talking to them about the mosquito. It was the first year that they had it. And their maintenance manager, we were sitting in his office and he had a stack of those things in the corner. He looks at me, here, you want one? <laughs> so I'm like, uh, yeah, man, sure. Because <laughs> he he's a modeler himself. He's a sci-fi uh, modeler. He's like, I'm never going to build them here. You want one? <laughs> I was like, yeah, man, give me two. He would only give me one, but I, I, I totally, I was like, wow, are you serious? Really appreciate it. So that'll definitely be a, a fun build because um, the kid is just fantastic. You know, I mean, the God, the fit on those things and the detail that they put into them. I could definitely get into 132 scale stuff. Just again, going back, back to the cockpit uh, work and things like that uh, would be a lot of fun to get into the weathering 
God, man, you can just go crazy with that size. To go back to the largest collection of 132 scale aircraft I've ever seen was at Nats out here in Vegas. Uh, I've been to a couple other Nats, but I've never seen that many 132 scale aircraft. So somewhere out there, people are catching on to that scale. Yeah, those those Tamiya kits are beautiful. Uh, You definitely get what you pay for. Yeah, true. So what's next on the bench for you? Well, I committed myself to doing Desert Storm subjects for this year, being it's the 30th anniversary. Um, So I'm going to finish up the GR1. It's either going to be, I have an A7, A70. I'm going to either, you know, my plan is to do a Navy one. That was the last war that that aircraft operated in uh, off of the uh, Kennedy. So they had VA-72 and VA-46, the Klansmen. And so I'm leaning towards doing those guys, the Klansmen, because they had uh, some pretty uh, unique markings as far as their... um, the kill markings and uh, their name, um, you know, where they would put the pilot's name, they, they used like a sword, you know, as, as, a, as a backdrop for the pilot's name. So some of the nose markings on those things is just really cool. You get into research and photos of them, the weathering of those jets. I don't know whether they were getting to the point that we're like, you know what, these are the, this is the last cruise, so who cares what they look like? But some of them would just got awful dirty and, and just worn looking and, and either that, it's either going to be that or I do have a 72nd scale B-52G that I'm interested in doing as well. Um, the 42nd bomb wing out of Loring Air Force Base up in Maine, they had a debt that operated out of, I believe, Diego Garcia. And so they, they, they flew some missions over Iraq during the uh, during Desert Storm as well. So I'm leaning towards doing either that or, you know, it's going to be that or the A-7. I think the A-7, that'd be a good quick build Hmm. After this GR one, I, th- I think that'd be a little fun one to slap together. Did you say which kit that A seven is? Oh, uh, it's the Hasegawa one, Hasegawa A seven E. Yeah, so I mean, it's I, a good kit. Yeah, here it goes together pretty decently. The intake is about the only place you really have to do some work. Of course, the A seven intake's gigantic, so it's front and center, man. So <laughs> yeah, I think that's gonna be next. I think you, you I just made up my mind right now. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what would be? your magnum opus build. It doesn't even need to exist. Just something you would absolutely love to do. A 148-scale P3 Orion. Doesn't exist. I mean, there's some old VAC form ones out there, but I I, I really wish someone would do an injection-molded P3. Uh, Again, you know, I I harp on the Ravel Germany guys all the time, and anyone else who will listen, I think it's a good, it would be a good um, seller just because of the, again, the number of operators the variants, the marking options, the aftermarket stuff that could be available. And just because I get 4,000 hours in the things, I want to build one, man. <laughs> uh, you know, 48 scale, P- it'd be a good size. But then I look, you know, and I go, you know what? There's 48 scale C-130s, there's 48 scale B-1s, there's 48 scale B-52s. Wouldn't be that big. Come on. <laughs> I don't think we're going to see it anytime soon, though. No, so it's always the kits we want that we never get. Yeah, yeah. I think that is all the questions from me. Well, thanks, Ivan. Thanks, Whitey. Thank you. Great job. All right. The time has come. It is time for the Triple P's interview with Steve Zaloga. This is Scott and TJ having a good time talking to a legend. Welcome into another Plastic Posse podcast interview. Our guest today has had a monumental impact on scale modeling. Before I introduce him right out of the gate, he is the first guest that we have spoken to 
that has his own Wikipedia page, and a search on Amazon.com in the book section reveals hundreds of results. He is a respected author, historian, researcher, archiver, lecturer, consultant, and last and certainly not least, a scale modeler. He has published or contributed to hundreds of books on military history and related subjects, including extensive texts on Americans and other nations' military units, battles, and equipment from World War II, as well as other historical eras. He also speaks several languages. He holds both bachelor's and master's degree in history. He has been a highly regarded defense analyst, as well as a special correspondent for Jane's Intelligence Review. And he is also a member of the executive board for the New York Military Affairs Symposium, which is an independent nonprofit group that is dedicated to the preservation and furthering of military history in the city of New York. We are very honored today to be joined by Steve Zaloga. Steve, welcome to the Posse. Nice to be here. TJ is also with us today. That I am. So, Steve, I guess, where did your love of history first start? Well, when I was a kid, um, my dad served in World War II, as did my grandfather. They were both in the U.S. Army. In fact, my grandfather landed at uh, Omaha Beach on D-Day, and my dad landed um, a few weeks after, also on Omaha Beach. So when I was a kid growing up, both the people in my immediate family, my dad and my grandfather, were World War II vets. And most of the um, the men in the neighborhood were also World War II vets. We just happened to be in a neighborhood. Most of the, the families in my neighborhood were roughly the same age. So a lot of my dad's friends were in the Army or the other services from World War II. And so I just took a natural interest in especially World War II history, but um, military history in general. And I was always fascinated by um, aircraft and military vehicles and that sort of thing. So it was kind of a natural combination of interest in military history and a fascination with vehicles and aircraft and stuff like that. Did you ever think at that time that your love of history would end up spanning your entire career? Uh, No, because like most kids, I had no idea what I was going to do. I didn't have any strong direction when I was younger as to what profession I wanted to follow. And in fact, when I went to college, um, I went to Union College in Schenectady, New York, which if people know it, they know it has both a strong uh, STEM program, uh, especially in engineering, and it also has a strong humanities program in history. And that's one of the reasons I chose that college, because I hadn't decided between going into engineering or going into history. And I actually started out the first year I was at Union um, I was in engineering and then decided I was more interested in the history of engineering than in the actual uh, process of engineering. So I switched my major in my uh, sophomore year to history and um, was happy with the t- decision ever since. Um, if I'd gone into engineering, I'm sure I would have enjoyed it, but uh, I'm quite happy I went into history. Well, that leads me kind of to the next question I had, which was, you know, how did your education benefit you or influence you with regards to researching military history and especially armor? Well, actually, my interest in in writing or research actually preceded going to college. Um, I started building models, model airplanes, mostly when I was like four or five years old. And um, so I was both building models and reading a lot of books, especially on airplanes. Um, I hung out down at the local library in Massachusetts where I grew up, and they had a nice little section uh, of uh, aircraft books. So um, I read aircraft books. The librarian, in fact, said, we ought to just give you these books. You're the only person who ever looks at them. 
and I would take them out repeatedly. But in any event, so so I was looking at airplane books and airplane history and that sort of thing. But I also got interested a bit in tanks. And part of the reason was actually my modeling background. Um, I started out building almost exclusively aircraft until my teenage years. One of the parts of aircraft modeling that I especially liked was um, detailing up aircraft cockpits. I just liked the small detail part. The rest of the airplane I found a little bit on the boring side, but the airplane cockpits I found kind of interesting. And um, while reading one of the scale modeling magazines, the one that came out of California, um, they started covering uh, tank modeling a little bit more, and they were talking about you know small scale tank models and doing conversions and stuff like that. So I started doing a little bit of that using the old Airfix kits and HM Roco PC kits and that sort of thing. And I got really interested in building armor models because unlike aircraft model, they're a little bit more detailed just in the sense of, you know, the track and the suspension and all that stuff is apt to be a lot more complicated than your average aircraft model. So um, I started to move in the direction of um, tank modeling. And as I was doing that also, I was starting to get more interested in potentially writing um, because I was seeing, I was an avid reader. I was buying um, things like the old aircraft profiles and the William Green books. And I started buying a few of the tank books and I subscribed to various magazines and I belonged to various societies like IPMS and AFE News and that sort of thing. So I was thinking of starting to write and I started to lean towards writing about tanks because quite honestly, there at the time, and we're talking the late 1960s, there were tons of people writing about airplanes and hardly anybody writing about tanks. And so I started to lean in the direction of writing about tanks simply because there was a uh, maybe not as big an audience, but there was more of a potential from an author's standpoint to get stuff published. So um, actually, even before I went to college, I was starting to do some research for potential articles. And the um, the first magazine I wrote for was a small publication out of Canada called AFE News that was edited by George Bradford. And um, so I did my first articles for George um, right when I was going to college. In fact, I remember I did my first article for him when I was up at Union College in Schenectady because I remember using the uh, college library to do a lot of the research. So that's that was my connection between the hobby side and the uh, the writing side. They're both they're both connected to the same subject area, but um, it's just a different approach to the subject matter. You know, going back to writing books, um, what is the primary driver for you when you decide you want to write a book? Is it determined by just your interest or results of the research that you're doing or by your publisher? Or is it kind of a combination of all of those things together? Yeah, it's really a combination. Um, and I'll, I'll give you some examples. Uh, obviously, when I um, started out, I was mostly interested in doing subjects that I wanted to do myself. So there were certain subject areas that really interested me. For example, I was very interested in Soviet armor during World War II. And part of my motivation was I was looking out there at the books and the existing books I thought weren't very good. And so I thought, well, there's a gap there. I'm interested in the subject. So that's a, a natural area of interest for me. So Many of my early books were um, done on subjects that I had personal interest in. Um, then at a certain point, and quite a few years later, um, I was writing for Osprey Publishing over in England. And um, as you probably know, they publish just tons of stuff. They publish mostly small books um, like the Vanguard series, the campaign series. And um, strangely enough, I sometimes found that 
books that they were suggesting rather than ones that I wanted to do actually ended up for me being more interesting in the sense that they pushed me in new directions. And and I'll give you some specific examples. Um, probably 20 years ago, um, one of my editors over there uh, who was editing a series that Osprey does on, on fortifications called Fortress, he said, we need somebody to do a book on D-Day fortifications, the German Atlantic Wall fortifications that were in Normandy that opposed the uh, D-Day landings. And I thought, well, I haven't written anything on D-Day, but as I say, I have a little family connection there and I was interested. I'd been over to Normandy back in the 1980s. So I thought, well, that'd be interesting. It'll give me an excuse to take a flight over there and bring my camera over and take pictures of the bunkers and do that stuff. And I became absolutely fascinated by it and subsequently did a few more books for Osprey on the Atlantic Wall. Um, in fact, my most recent hardcover, um, it's not out yet, but it'll be out next year, is on uh, Point du Hawk, where the Rangers had to climb the cliffs to attack the German uh, fortifications. So that spun out of that whole thing. So actually, that was a case of where the publisher said, well, we've got this gap. We know you can do um, something f- on the subject for us. Would you be interested in doing it? So Sometimes the inspiration from the publishers is what motivates it. There's a couple series that I'm currently doing for Osprey, which are entirely prompted by them. Um, if you look at the Osprey New Vanguard series, um, they're starting to do a series of books, which are basically small encyclopedias dealing with the tanks in specific battles. So first one I did for them was called Tanks of the Battle of the Bulge. And then this summer, um, I did the books a year ago, but they're coming out this summer. I did three on tanks in Normandy, uh, one on D-Day itself, one on Allied tanks Normandy, one on German tanks Normandy. And I'm doing a similar two-volume one on Battle of Germany 1945 and doing a three-parter for them on tanks of the Cold War. So um, th- that whole thing got going because the editor felt that there was a need for um, these kind of encyclopedic um, surveys of tanks. And they're not really aimed at the hobby community. I mean, the tank modelers will find stuff of interest. There's, you know, there's photos there and there's um, color plates and stuff like that. But they're really aimed more at military historians and war gamers. So there's a lot of facts and figures and numbers and charts and statistics and organizational stuff. And that's something about Osprey that uh, readers should be aware of. They they appeal to a variety of audiences, not only the modeling community, but also uh, the the wargaming community and the military history buffs. So when you're writing books for them, you have to sort of be aware of who your likely audience is and you have to sort of tailor the book to who the audience might be. Yeah, that makes, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Well, let's uh, stay with books for a minute because, you know, one of my most treasured books in my collection is Armored Thunderbolt, the Sherman in World War II. It's an incredible photo essay, but I also really liked your your rational approach to a tank that is often misunderstood. What was your main reason for for writing this book? I know there's other ones that have kind of come out that you did in that same series, but what made you decide to write that particular book? Well, that one was partly inspired. um, I shouldn't use the word inspired, but partly um, it stemmed from another uh, popular book called Death Traps by Belton Cooper. Um, anybody who's into U.S. tanks in World War II will know Belton Cooper's uh, book. Uh, and that book started, or it didn't start, but it reinforced the very negative views on the Sherman tank. Um, something that the audience should be aware of is that uh, Death Traps was ghostwritten. Um, I talked to Belton Cooper on a number of occasions, and everybody says, well, it's a biographical account from a World War II ordnance officer. 
And that's partly true, but it was also written in part by a wargamer. So it has a lot of the um, the wargamer tropes that were popular back in the 60s and the 70s. Um, if any people in the audience remember the old war game show, or war game show, the war game uh, Panzer Blitz um, from the late 60s, um, I think it was Avalon Hill. You always wanted to play the German tanks because they were almost invincible. Because these attitudes about tank performance tend to follow waves. So when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, everybody thought that American tanks were the best thing since sliced bread and the German tanks were junk. And then there came a period um, starting in the late 60s, early 70s, especially in the wargaming community, where there was a reversal of that view. And then suddenly um, German tanks became, you know, the absolute war winning weapon of all times and, uh, you know, the absolute best thing during World War II. And it, it kind of went to another extreme where suddenly German stuff was invincible and the U.S. stuff was all junk. And Bell and Cooper's book came out at that time, and it reflected a lot of that wargamer attitude. A lot of the statements in it were basically wargamer uh, baloney that wasn't based on a lot of research, but was just based on um, uh, viewpoints of, of certain wargame companies or the way that they set up their wargames. So in any event, by that stage, I had done a lot of work at National Archives and at the Army War College at um, the Military History Institute. So I had collected a great deal of material on uh, the Sherman tank and on U.S. tank performance during World War II, partly because I was also doing books for Osprey on campaigns. So I was spending a lot of time going through U.S. Army campaign records and also the corresponding German records. Um, One thing that I try to do in my campaign books is not only cover the U.S. side, but also cover the German side. There Too much of the stuff that's done on American military history in World War II is done only from the American perspective and doesn't look at the German perspective. So I had a, I had a great deal of material. And having uh, heard all of these things about, oh, the Sherman tank was junk and blah, 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 I realized after going through all the campaign stuff that the story really hadn't been accurately told, that very few people had taken the time to actually look at the, the actual unit records and the statistical data that's available at the archives and that sort of thing. And so that's what inspired me to get going on American Thunderbolt, to kind of bring together all that new research that I had found down at the archives and down at the Military History Institute, and to put it into kind of a readable form to explain to people why the Sherman tank was not what they thought it was. So that was one of my, um, I wouldn't say fun project, but it was a project that I was very enthusiastic about because I thought it was an important um, subject and one that really needed some attention. Um, so I was very, very happy to do it. And the book's done quite well. It probably, I wouldn't say it sold more books than any of my other books because quite honestly, a lot of the cheap paperbacks, like the old Squadron Signal books, like I did a Squadron Signal book in the T-34 and that sold, I think like 30,000 copies, which by in military history book standards is really quite good. But Armored Thunderbolt, as far as my hardcovers or my serious, more serious history books are concerned, that's done extremely well and continues to sell pretty well. So, um, So on the one hand, I enjoyed doing it. On the other hand, it seems to have been fairly well received. It's just a terrific book. I mean, anybody that loves the Sherman, especially as a modeler, is such a treasure trove of not only a great analysis on the vehicle, but just uh, so many great photographs in that book as well. Well, that also, the photo end is actually probably inspired more from the modeling end. One of the reasons that I started to do photo research with U.S. Army photos um, was largely because of my modeling. Um, You know, back when I was um, starting to get into this back in the 70s, the photo content on U.S. tanks really wasn't very good. You you got the typical ordnance photos, you know, development photos, but you didn't get a lot of combat photos. 
so back in the uh, back in that period, I started going down to the Pentagon where the Army Signal Corps photos were origi- originally located. They had a room in the Pentagon, and you you could go there and look at the photos, and you could order copies. And so I did that along with Bruce Culver for Squadron Signal. Um, he did a Sherman tank book for them based on that. I did a book on the Stuart. And then subsequently, I didn't do anything more for Squadron for a variety of reasons, but um, I still continue to do photo research. Uh, the collection moved over to uh, Defense Audiovisual Agency over in Acostia, then it eventually moved up to uh, National Archives up in College Park, Maryland, when that new facility finally opened. So I've spent, oh, it's got to be 40 years um, going through Signal Corps photos. And I wouldn't say I've seen every one, but I've seen a very large portion of the World War II collection. Um, and the reason I haven't seen the whole thing is that um, the collection is very badly organized. It's a complete mashup. Um, there's stuff scattered through the collection, and the collection goes out into the 1970s and 80s. There's even World War II stuff mixed in the photo collections in, in Army 1970s, 1980s stuff. So I keep every now and then stumbling into new World War II photos completely where I don't expect them. So that's a continuing process. Before we move on from this, the you know, just uh, really appreciate the fact that you've, in your research, you know, you've broken down the Sherman. You know, the British had a very, very different experience with the Sherman than the Americans did. They used it differently. You know, their units ran into different types of German units. But I really like how you've, in your books, you break that out and you make, you know, because there's distinct differences between how the vehicle was used. Yeah, in fact, if people are interested in that, that that recent Osprey book that I did that came out this spring called, um, I think it's called uh, Tanks in Normandy, the Allies, or something like that, but it's the new Vanguard. Um, That gets a little bit more directly into it because I have to compare and contrast British and American tank use in Normandy. And I think that that's exactly the problem. A lot of these Sherman tank myths actually started up because of the British use of the Sherman, especially in Normandy, where the British were facing extremely dense concentrations of German tanks and especially Panthers. And they had a really rough time dealing with the Panther, uh, with the Sherman. Whereas the U.S. experience was entirely different. Um, people don't seem to realize it, but the U.S. tank force really didn't see very much tank versus tank fighting um, until uh, the Battle of the Ardennes. I mean, there was certainly tank fighting, obviously, at Kasserine Pass, and then a little bit of fighting on Sicily, a little bit of fighting in Italy. Um, a little bit of fighting in Normandy, but the U.S. Army in Normandy didn't face anywhere near the number of tanks that the British did. And the the first real big tank versus tank battles that the U.S. faced was uh, in Lorraine between Patton's Third Army and Montoyful's Fifth Panzer Army in September. Um, I did a book for uh, for Stackpole on that called uh, Patton versus the Panzers. That was really the first time that um, the U.S. encountered large, large numbers of Panthers and had relatively large scale tank versus tank battles. And contrary to what the general popular opinion might be, the Sherman did extremely well and the Panther did very badly. And then, of course, the um, the key battles are the Ardennes. And um, I've written extensively on that. I've done several campaign books on the Ardennes, most recently one on the defeat of 12th SS Panzer Division. Um, but also I did a, a Tanks in the Battle of the Bulge for Osprey in the smaller book series. And I've done a, an Osprey duel on the Sherman versus the Panther also dealing with that. I also like that a big part of your analysis, you mentioned, you know, the the large-scale American versus German battle there with the Sherman and the Panther, the importance of having, you know, veterans and 
you know, the crews that were fighting in these vehicles, that was just as critical as having experienced aviators in the Pacific and in fighter aircraft as well. Well, what actually got me going on that, and in fact, the reason I did the AeroCorps book is that when I was growing up, um, during the summer, I worked in the same factory my dad did to earn money for college. And one of my dad's friends was a tanker in 4th Armored Division. He was an 8th Tank Battalion. And that was the first experience I had at the time. I was just a teenager, but that was the first experience I had with talking with an actual tanker. So um, I, you know, during the summertime when I had nothing better to do when I was in the factory, I'd sit down with him and, you know, talk about what he thought about the Sherman and what it was like. And then, then later on in my career in the 1980s, um, uh, through a mutual friend, I ran into um, Colonel Jimmy Leach. And uh, Jimmy Leach was a company commander in 4th Armored Division in, in uh, uh, Creighton Abrams Battalion and the 37th Tank Battalion. And so Jimmy Leach uh, fought in the Battle of Aerocorps and fought with 4th Armored Division right from the beginning to the uh, end of the war. And then he was later uh, a senior armor officer in the U.S. Army after the war. And Jimmy was heavily connected with um, the Armor Training Center down at Fort Knox. So I used to go down to the Association of the U.S. Army show down in Washington every October. And Jimmy at the time was representative for Teledine Continental, the engine people. And so every year when um, when I was down there at the Aussie show, I'd run into Jimmy and talk to him about whatever tank project I was working on. Um, so whenever I was working on a Sherman tank project, I'd go and pick his brain about, well, what'd you think about this? What'd you think about this? And he was enormously useful because um, the friend of my dad who I would talk to was, you know, basically a sergeant. He, you know, just had the perspective of a, an ordinary tank crewman, whereas Jimmy Leach had the perspective of a uh, a young officer, um, you know, lieutenant, then a captain. Um, but he saw a lot of tank tank fighting, both tank versus tank and tank versus infantry and that sort of thing. And he remained a tank officer um, after the war. So he stayed in touch with developments in uh, in armored warfare in the 1940s and 50s. So he was he was very instrumental in shaping my um, my viewpoint on the performance of the Sherman during World War II. Also, he inspired my interest in especially 4th Armored Division, but also in some specific battles, uh, like the Battle at Aerocorps and um, later the Battle of the Bulge. Getting back to Armored Thunderbolt, the companion volumes of Armored Attack 1944 and Armored Victory uh, 1945. I'm just asking about those. I mean, same thing. The the photos in there are incredible. And your overview of, of our forces is great. Um, was that just kind of an outgrowth of Armored Thunderbolt or were they very much their own projects? Um, they were n- not entirely uh, uh, connected with Thunderbolt, except for the fact that it was the same publisher. Um, by then I had a, uh, an acquisition editor at Stackpole who was interested in the projects. You know, they, they sold, the, they could see that Armored Thunderbolt was selling. So they realized there was you know, some popular interest. So it justified the books. Um, but the reason I did the books, quite honestly, is by that stage, I had thousands and thousands of photos of U.S. tanks in World War, yeah, in the European theater in World War II. That was my sort of the central area of interest. I mean, I have a lot of pictures of tanks in the Pacific and in Mediterranean theater, but my main collection is the European theater of operations. And um, I thought, especially the modelers. The war gamers don't care so much. The military historians don't care so much. But I figured that tank modelers would appreciate a very large collection of um, photos showing the tanks in combat. So it's especially good for diorama builders and people looking for markings or, you know, the type of tanks that were there and that sort of thing. So that was more my inspiration. It was really 
all more from my perspective, you know, from a, a tank modeler perspective, what kind of book would I like? Well, I would like a, a big book with about a thousand photos that shows the tanks in combat. And so fortunately, Stackpole was willing to support it. And um, the books were uh, had to get sort of shoehorned in, and I'll explain why. The size of the books was determined largely by the pricing the idea being that they didn't want the price to go over $40 because Barnes & Noble won't carry books over $40. So the reason that the books are the size that they are and the photos are relatively small and they're relatively inexpensively published was Stackpole had to keep the price down. So the paper wasn't necessarily the best and the wrapper wasn't necessarily the best, but at least I got the books out. And the thing I would tell the audience is, if you want those books, go and buy them. Because um, just a few days ago, I went up on Amazon just accidentally, and I noticed that um, the one armored attack that covers tanks in 1944, the lowest price copy that they had on Amazon was $940. So I'm assuming that what happened is uh, Stackpole must have remaindered the remaining copies. And Stackpole got bought up by another company a few years ago, so they're not doing as much military stuff. So they must have just decided they're not going to republish it. So in any event, it sounds, I don't know this for a fact, but I think that they must have remained at the last copies because the usual retail price is like in the high $30 range. So um, if you don't have a copy yet and you're interested in that, go and buy it because it's probably already out of print and it's going to disappear and it's just going to get ridiculously expensive. Well, I would echo that. I mean, those three books at, at a price of less than $40 each, you get so much value for your money. They're hardbound books. They're very, very big, you know, big books. And, you know, they're going to cost you roughly the same as most paperback books are going to cost you, but you're going to get your analysis and you're going to get an incredible cache of photographic references to go along with it. So continuing on um, with talking about, you know, maybe the perception of the Sherman and U.S. armor in World War II, I've read several interviews with you in the last few years related to these topics. Uh, the release of the movie uh, Fury, along with video games like World of Tanks and War Thunder, really reignited a lot of interest in recent years about armor. From a historical standpoint, how accurate do you feel that the modern-day portrayal of U.S. armor in particular has been handled? Well, to begin with, I would say, you know, starting with your theme about how World of Tanks and Fury and all that stuff has drummed up interest, that's something that I would definitely agree with and something that I'm happy to see because, uh, quite honestly, it makes it a lot easier for me to go and interest publishers in books. So when I go to Osprey or to various other publishers and say, I'd like to do a book on World War II tanks on such and such, they really jump at it because it's opened up a new audience um, that wasn't there a few years ago. A number of years ago, yeah, the tank modelers would buy books and the general military historians had a certain amount of interest. Um, and the war gamers had a certain amount of interest, but um, especially the war games, especially uh, 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 World of Tanks and War Thunder and games like that have really, really drummed up a lot of interest in tank warfare. And um, I know from talking to the publishers that they can see that in their sales figures that um, it's re really uh, bumped up the interest. So I like it from that standpoint. From an historical standpoint, it's a, a really mixed bag. Um, World of Tanks and War Thunder are a lot of fun. I'm not a I'm not a, a video gamer. I don't play the games. I do watch them every now and then, just and I'm amazed at the quality of the graphics. So I can see why people are interested, and I know a lot of people who do play the games and who are fascinated by them. 
but they are games. They're not intended to be historical re- recreations. Um, they tend to overfocus on the tank versus tank aspects, you know, the Sherman versus the Panther, or, you know, Sherman versus whatever tanks. Real tank warfare wasn't like that. The vast majority of fighting had nothing to do with tanks versus tanks. And so it leads to that misperception that the Sherman tank can only be judged by the Sherman versus the Panther or the Sherman versus the Tiger or stuff like that. You you have to go back and read real military history accounts in order to understand why that's a, a bit misguided. Um, Fury is a different issue. I mean, Fury is obviously a fictional account. A lot of Fury was extremely well done. The last scene is just weird. The whole battle scene is just crazy. Um, you know, I'm happy that they made the movie because it drummed up a lot of interest in tank warfare. But the last scene there is sort of like the final scene in Saving Private Ryan. The early part of Saving Private Ryan is great. The later part of Saving Private Ryan is really strange. As I think I just mentioned, I just did a Ranger book recently. So having been interested in the Rangers in Normandy, uh, Saving Private Ryan, the first section is is fascinating and very evocative of what really happened. But then when you go and you look at the last scenes, it's just a little bit goofy. And it's the same with Fury. You know, when you see these well-dressed Waffen SS units with, you know, bajillion Panzerfaust and fighting it off against one tank, eh, <laughs> that was just strange. Well, I want to ask you one more question here and then uh, move over to TJ and let him ask you some questions about modeling. But I know you've been uh, outspoken about the fact that the U.S. in particular has not done a credible job in preserving our armor history and the collections of vehicles that are in U.S. Army inventory, especially as compared to other countries. So how can we as armor modelers or historian, fans of history um, amateur historians, how can we help and try and find solutions to this problem? I don't know that there's any easy solution. The problem is, is that the U.S. Army in general doesn't have very much interest in its technology um, as compared to the other services. I mean, I'm sure you guys are, in, I'm sure some of the audience has gone out to the U.S. Air Force Museum out at um, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base out in Dayton. It's an absolutely spectacular museum. I haven't been down to the U.S. Navy one down in Pensacola, but I know that Navy aviation is very well represented down at that museum. Um, And so the other services, the Navy and the Air Force in particular, tend to be more technologically inclined. And um, so they've done a much better job preserving the history of their technology. Um, The Army, well, to begin with, the Army didn't even have a national museum until recently, and it's just barely opened. I mean, the Army just opened its... National Army Museum down at Fort Belvoir this past year, that's been decades in the making. So it's not merely the history of Army technology. It's Army history in general has not been well served by public displays. Um, Part of the problem was is that um, the main U.S. Army collection, the one that was at Aberdeen Proving Grounds, was broken up uh, about a decade ago. Um, I'm very familiar with that because I live right down the road from Aberdeen Proving Grounds. I'm only about 10 miles from Aberdeen. Um, the problem there was just an unfortunate confluence of events and um, the stupidity of uh, the bureaucracy down in D.C. Uh, the museum at Aberdeen Proving Grounds was called the Ordnance Museum because back in World War II, back in World War I and in World War II, the Ordnance Department of the U.S. Army was the uh, organization responsible for tank development and artillery development and uh, weapons uh, development in general and testing, not, not only the development, but the testing. What happened after World War II 
um, was that ordinance moved in other directions. Now, it does, now it's responsible mostly for vehicle maintenance. Um, and the whole issue of tank development uh, went over to other branches of the service, whether it was to tank, uh, take on, tank and automotive command or Army Material Command. Um, and also the Aberdeen collection was connected with U.S. Army Technical Intelligence because the guy who organized it, Colonel J.B. Jert, he was an ordnance officer who was the U.S. Army's main tech intel guy during World War II. And part of that process was he collected all those uh, German and Italian and Japanese armored vehicles and brought them to Aberdeen for test and evaluation by the U.S. Army to see what could be learned from foreign technology. And so Aberdeen, to this day, continues two of those traditions, uh, testing armored vehicles. There's still the main U.S. Army test tracks here for armored vehicles. And also tech intel. There's been a tech intel battalion, a U.S. Army tech intel battalion here for decades. But the problem was that the museum was called an ordnance museum. So when uh, the Army decided to move the ordnance school from Aberdeen Proving Grounds down to Fort Lee in Virginia, uh, they connected the two, the ordnance museum and the ordnance school, even though both of them really have no connection anymore. They had a connection back in 1945 when uh, Colonel Jarrett formed the museum. But the museum was really an Aberdeen Proving Ground Museum, not an ordnance uh, museum. But the bureaucrats down in the Pentagon didn't understand that because they didn't know what the what the museum was. And so they moved it down to Fort Lee, which was unfortunate because Fort Lee doesn't have the space for the collection. So the collection got all busted up. So chunks of it are down at the Innocent Arsenal down in Alabama, where there's no public access. Um, there's a small ordnance collection down at Fort Lee, which is close to the public because it's on a serving army base. And then a chunk of it is down at Fort Benning now, where the armor school is now located. And that has some public access on specific days, but it's basically close to the public as well. Um, so basically, the public's been completely cut off from what the army uh, has these days for its uh, historical armored vehicle collection. There's plenty of leftover stuff scattered around the country. I mean, I'm sure you've seen tanks and artillery pieces sitting off out in front of VFW posts and American Legion posts. Um, but as far as a, a national collection with all the prototype U.S. tanks and all the foreign tanks, the stuff is scattered now between three different locations. There's no central um, interest in it. The The organization responsible for it is the Center for Military History. They don't have very much interest in artifacts. They're more of an archival historical organization, not a museum-oriented organization. So um, just bureaucratically, um, the U.S. Army's in a world of hurt as far as um, displaying armored vehicles and, uh, you know, kind of allowing the public access to it. Um, and then 9-11, of course, crippled the whole thing because 9-11 meant that all the bases shut down. Uh, prior to 9-11, you could walk over to the Aberdeen. You didn't need any pub, you didn't need any special permission to get access to the um, Aberdeen collection. In fact, they used to have busloads of people coming in there every day because Aberdeen is um, somewhat equidistant between New York City and Washington. So tour buses going between New York City and um, Washington would make a pit stop at the museum because they had great restrooms. And people would get out and walk, you know, walk out and, you know, walk for 15 minutes and then get back on the bus. So whenever you go over to Aberdeen Premier Ground Museum back in the old days, there'd be, you know, hundreds of people there every day. It just happened to be a, a great public museum. But then once 9-11 happened, base was closed off and um, access to the collection was uh, greatly restricted. Then when BRAC happened, the base realignment uh, happened, then it was 
just completely all busted up. So it's it's really unfortunate. I don't I don't know what can be done until there's some senior U.S. Army officer or some head of Center for Military History or something like that, or there's some kind of public outcry. Um, I don't think anything will be done. Um, and the situation is only getting worse. Um, uh, they had given a number of armored vehicles to a small tank destroyer, private tank destroyer museum up in Danbury, Connecticut. And then when the uh, museum closed, they just destroyed the vehicles. So they destroyed an MBT-70 prototype. They destroyed several foreign vehicles that the foreign governments wanted back. Um, so it, it's it's tragic. I mean, they're you know it's not only that they're not allowing public access to the vehicles, they're actually destroying some of them. So, um, you know, it's not a very happy situation. Maybe now with the National uh, Army Museum down at Fort Belvoir, what they could do with time, I don't know that they have any plans to do so. Um, if there's enough space down at Belvoir and there's enough public interest, they might be able to move some of the tanks there. Um, they have a handful of tanks inside at the museum. For example, they have the uh, the Jumbo Sherman, um, the one that actually served as the spearhead of 37 Tank Battalion uh, in the relief of Bastogne. It was... Uh, um, a well-known, you know, the Cobra King, um, well-known vehicle. And it is the real Cobra King. So they have that there and they have a Medal of Honor, uh, Reno FT from World War One. So they, they, they do have a few vehicles there, but it's going to take some time before they have any significant collection. Uh, it's just such a travesty. Like you've mentioned, you can go all over the country and see incredible air museum after air museum. But really the only people that have done a credible job of restoring and maintaining them have been private individuals. You mentioned before we were recording MVTF, you know, back before Jacques passed away and his collection. Um, there was a collection actually here in Utah in the hands of a private collector that's been liquidated. Um, you know, but yet yeah, you can go to the Smithsonian, you can go to Dayton, you know, even here in Utah at Hill Hill Air Force Base, there's a, a great aircraft museum. Hopefully we can figure out a way as a nation to do a better job preserving those armor pieces. Well, the, the private museums are picking up the slack. Jacques Littlefield's collection was broken up. Uh, half it went up to the Seattle area with the Paul Allen collection. I, my impression is that that collection is closing down. Paul Allen died, and I don't know that they're going to keep that museum open. Uh, the pandemic didn't help. Um, but the other half, it went to the Collins Foundation out in Massachusetts, and they opened up the new American Heritage Museum in Stowe, Massachusetts, which is um, outside of Boston. So I've been up there, and I strongly recommend anybody who's interested in tank history, if you're on the East Coast, go and see the Collins Foundation Museum, the American Heritage Museum in Massachusetts. It's a spectacularly nice museum. To begin with, it has those beautifully restored vehicles that Jacques Littlefield restored. So it's got that Panther tank that he spent two million bucks to restore. It's got a beautifully restored Stug Three. It's got a whole bunch of stuff. Very, very nice collection. Besides that, the display area is wonderful. They did a very nice display. So for example, there's overhead walkways. So you can not only walk around the tanks, you can also get up on the walkways and look down in the tank. So from a modeler standpoint, bring your camera. You can get great photos of the top of tanks you know, from angles that you can't see. So I would strongly recommend that to people. There's a, a couple of other new private uh, uh, armored vehicle museums opening up. So I think that for people interested in um, armored vehicle history, that uh, the private route is going to be the the one to look at, um, at least in the short term. Maybe the U.S. Army will smarten up. But uh, until then, the private ones like the Collins Foundation, I think they're the, the, they're the direction that people are going to have to turn to. All right. So we're going to kind of pivot over to 
scale modeling. And I guess my first question would be, how does your scale modeling fit in or inform your other pursuits? Is it the primary driver or more of a byproduct of your research? Well, the modeling was actually the inspiration for my writing, but now we're talking ancient history because, um, as I mentioned before, I started modeling when I was four or five years old. So we're talking the mid-1950s. Um, when I started modeling, I started modeling model aircraft. Then when I was in my teenage years, I started to move more towards um, tank modeling. And I concentrated more on tank modeling for uh, most of the rest of my modeling career. Um, the strange thing is now I probably do as much modeling that's related to my books as I do uh, modeling that I just do for fun. And to explain what I mean by that, um, for any of the audience who looks at Osprey books, they will know that there's these battle scenes in several of the series. For example, in the campaign series, there will be illustrations of aircraft or illustrations of tanks or illustrations of warships. Well, those illustrations are not done by me, by the author, but as the author, I'm responsible for generating the reference material that is used by the illustrator to create the battle scene. Well, I found over the years, because of my modeling experience, that the easiest way to prepare art references for the illustrator is to build a model of the thing in the markings that I want, and then to photograph it, and then to send that into the illustrator. Because instead of trying to hunt up a specific angle, you know, an airplane flying at a specific angle or a tank at a specific angle or a specific type of tank, it's easier just to go out there into the market because these days there are just so many kits and find the airplane or the ship or the tank that I want, build the model. You know, I'm not talking about doing IPMS national quality builds. They're fast builds. Usually I can do them over the course of a weekend. But put them in the right colors, put them in the right markings, photograph them, and then send them in to the illustrator. So I, I build probably as many aircraft models these days as I do tank models. And my reason is primarily I'm using them as um, art references, not as models in the conventional sense. I mean, I enjoy building them, but they're not done for the, from the standpoint of building them as a model. They're built from the standpoint of using them for illustration. Um, the other models I build, the tank, mostly tank models I do just for fun. I do build some ship and aircraft models for fun. Um, I've been doing a few ship models recently because um, back a few years ago was the, the anniversary of the D-Day landings, and I got involved in doing um, some D-Day landing craft. I did some LCTs, the landing craft tanks that brought the tanks ashore. I did uh, one of the destroyers that was involved with the Rangers at Point Du Hawk, and that's connected with a book that I recently did on Point Du Hawk. Um, similarly, I've done some aircraft related to books I've written. So, so there is some mutual, uh, reflection between the book writing and the modeling, but I do a lot of models just because they're models I'm interested in. Like, a uh, thing I'm working on this weekend, I'm working on a great wall hobbies, um, Messerschmitt, uh, me, uh, 323 gigon, uh, transport aircraft. And the only reason I'm buy or building it is I saw it at one of the local hobby stores a few weeks ago. And I remember the photographs of those things being shot down when they were crossing the uh, Med during the Tunisian campaign in 1943. And I saw those pictures when I was a teenager. So some of this, you know, is just inspired by historical interest. Some of it's just like, oh, that's a cool subject, a cool model. So, um, you know, the inspiration comes from all different sorts of sources. Your models are like, extremely detailed. I think anyone that has seen your work in books or uh, on on the internet can say that. Uh, and it involves a lot of kit bashing and scratch building to ensure that accuracy. Is is that the part you enjoy most? 
or is it the painting, the the finishing, you know, uh, marking selection, that sort of thing? I started out, well, I shouldn't say I started out. When I was um, a teenager and when I started going to college, I got very heavily involved in scratch building. And um, the reason for that um, was back in the day, I was building in small scale, meaning 176 or 172nd scale. And the selection of kits was really bad, especially in armor. There just weren't a lot of kits out there. You know, that's we're talking about the days when it was basically just the airfix kits. There were a few manufacturers starting to get into it, like Fujimi and Hasegawa, but there was not a very good selection of kits. I mean, this is even predating when Matchbox was doing small-scale armor. So if I wanted to do a lot of subjects, I basically had to build the stuff myself. And um, I got in, interested in scratch building because of the old American magazine, um, Scale Modeler, you know, that came out of Canoga Park in California. They had a number of people who were doing these kit bashes using index cards and all sorts of balsa wood and all sorts of uh, stuff. And I started doing that and I got a lot of satisfaction out of building that way. So I did a lot of conversions and heavy duty scratch builds in small scale. And I got involved at the IPMS national level. I won quite a few prizes at the IPMS nationals on a number of occasions. And then I got out of the hobby for a few decades just because of work. Um, for a while, I was um, commuting down to work in New York. I was living up in Connecticut. I was working for a TV production company down in New York. So I was spending a lot of time on the train commuting in and out um, during the day. This was back in the 80s and early 90s. So I didn't have time to do modeling. So I got out of it. And then when I got back into the um, hobby in the mid-1990s, because I was lucky enough to get a job where I could have a home office, by then the um, the balance in armor modeling in the United States had changed and small scale had kind of fallen out of favor. So I got I got back into armor modeling, but I got into mostly 135th scale because 135th scale is the scale. If you're in the United States and armor modeling, that's the predominant scale. I'd say that's 95% of the armor modeling. I still have friends who do small scale, but 95% of the stuff is 35th. Um, so I got into 35th scale. When I got into 35th scale, I didn't do as much scratch building. I certainly did a lot of conversion work and a lot of detail work, but not as much scratch building. Um, it's more difficult to scratch build in large scale. You have to start getting into resin casting and that sort of thing. I, I did some. I did scratch build a number of 35th scale tanks. But one reason I got out of it is that it came at a time when there were just so many more kits coming out. And there was always the danger that you'd go and spend you know months scratch building something or converting something. And two weeks after you finished it, somebody over in China or somebody over in Japan had come out with a kit of it. And so it was just <laughs> like, oh, I don't need this grief. And at that stage, I had had enough of the heavy-duty construction work, and I was getting more into, for example, figure painting. My style changed. I was putting more emphasis on always including a figure along with whatever tank model I built, and I was getting more enjoyment from doing figure painting. Um, so my style of modeling changed a bit. I spent a little bit more time on vignette bases. They're not really dioramas. I put a little scenic base, put the model on a scenic base, put a figure or two on it. So my style changed then. So my emphasis on what I was doing um, moved more towards just building existing kits, but doing painting and doing figures and doing a scenic base. So the the what my models look like now look different than what they did back in the 70s or the um, the early 80s. Um, and right now, I was also for a good uh, deal of time writing uh, magazine articles for military modeling over in Britain. And that strongly affected my modeling simply because the editor tended to prefer that I do new kits. So um, I would talk to the editor who at the time was Ken Jones. And Ken would say, ah, Tamiya's got a new tank model coming out. Do you want to do an article on, you know, the new Tamiya T-55 or the 
the new Tamiya Sherman or whatever was coming out. And so I would get an advanced release of the new kit or one of the new Dragon kits or that sort of thing. So I do magazine articles. And then uh, military modeling folded a number of years ago, so I didn't have that incentive anymore. And I did some writing for a few of the other British hobby magazines, and I've done occasional articles for Fine Scale in the States. But in recent years, I've just said, eh, I'm just going to model for fun. So I have not been doing very much modeling writing, and I, I just pick subjects that I want to do and um, just build them. Who are some of your modeling influences? Um, actually, my strongest influences are not tank modelers. They're probably people who most people don't know. When I was growing up, when I was a teenager and I started going to college, um, I belonged to IPMS NENY, Northeast New York, which is centered roughly in Albany, New York. That was probably my, my most influential hobby um, source because we had some exceptionally good modelers associated with the group. And also that group was very influential in IPMS for starting up regionals, um, the regional contests. Instead of just the national ones, they were doing regional shows. They did probably the first IPMS regional show that was held up in the Albany area. And that would bring in some of the modelers from uh, the other areas of New York, like Poughkeepsie and Syracuse and um, areas like that. And so there were some other really exceptional modelers um, that were sort of in that orbit in New York State. Um, one guy in particular, uh, Dan Dossert, who was an aircraft scratch builder, he built 72nd scale scratch build aircraft. In fact, he built models for the Smithsonian. So a lot of those modelers, and I, I don't mean to single out only Dan, because there were a bunch of other exceptionally good modelers with IPMS NENY, those guys strongly influenced my modeling. Um, I got a lot of feedback. Participating in an IPMS group or an AMPS group or a group like that is enormously helpful because you can learn a lot of new techniques. You can get good critiques. Once you know the people there, you can figure out who you can trust to give you good critiques. And so that interplay with other modelers, um, I found to be exceptionally helpful. And so I would say by far the most influential modelers, as far as I was concerned, was that circle of modelers in upstate New York. After that, I certainly went to a lot of um, national shows, both IPMS shows. I started going to the figure shows, like the ones that used to be done in Westchester. So I'd run into Shep Payne. I saw Shep's work. But it was that it was the IPMS crowd um, that I ran into first that I would say was, for me, the most influential. After that, I've seen lots of modelers. I mean, I've, I've gone to European shows, um, you know, to Troops and Tracks and Euromilitaire and to the Twinot show in the Netherlands and to other uh, to various the French shows. And so I've seen a lot of a lot of models. I can certainly say that I see certain models by certain modelers and they influence me saying, hey, that's an interesting approach or an interesting way to do things. But I, I wouldn't single out any particular modelers. It's just that, for example, at the moment, I think that the European um, tank modelers are more interesting and more influential for me than American stuff. I think that they're more adventurous. Um, I think that their display styles are a lot more appealing. And so I do tend to pay a bit more attention to um, what's going on over there than I do to the, to the stuff in the States. I mean, there's a lot of talent in American modelers, but I think generally the the more cutting edge stuff's over in Europe and perhaps as well in Japan, but I just don't, I just don't see the Japanese stuff to the extent I see the European stuff. I, I do get armor modeling magazine out of Japan, but um, I don't, I've never attended any shows in Japan, so I haven't seen that stuff firsthand, whereas the European stuff I have seen firsthand. So you've already touched on the fact that you build more than just armor, aircraft, and even ships. Is there a particular subject or genre or even nationality that you're more 
partial to, or you just kind of equal opportunity, whatever suits your fancy. Um, it really goes in phases. Um, back when I was doing uh, the model model magazine stuff, especially military modeling, a lot of my building, quite honestly, was just based on new kits. If you're a writer aiming at a, a magazine audience, the magazine audience wants to see the new kits. So for a long period of time there, back in the um, the 90s and early 2000s, a lot of my modeling was simply decided on whatever the manufacturers were bringing out. I mean, I had some choice in the matter. Um, so I would, because there were just so many kits coming out, so I would tend to pick stuff that I like. Um, so I would tend to do a lot of World War II U.S. stuff. I don't do a lot of modern stuff. I find that the modern stuff um, just doesn't appeal to me as much for any number of reasons. Certain countries interest me more than others. Um, I I certainly prefer um, U.S. World War II, although I don't build it a lot these days because I've just built so much of it. I don't build very much Soviet stuff or Russian stuff, even though I, I'm very interested in it from the military history standpoint. I've written a lot of books on Russian tanks. Um, I just don't find it as interesting as some other countries. There's certain little niche areas that I really like, like um, I'm very keen on uh, German stuff in Normandy, especially the so-called Becker conversions, those crazy little self-propelled guns on French tank chassis. So I built a lot of those and I've got plans to do several more of them. I've done a little bit of World War I stuff. So yeah, there's niches and I go through phases. There's periods of time when I do uh, certain subject areas, like back during the 75th D-Day anniversary, I did a bunch of D-Day related subjects. At the moment, I'm just kind of wallowing around. Just you know, I have a few projects, but it's just stuff that I stumbled into. You know, it's, it's kind of impulse buys. I'll be at a hobby store and I'll see something and say, hey, that's cool. And, you know, pick that up and, you know, build that just just based on uh, it looks like a, it's something different from what I've been building. So what are a couple of your favorite bills that you've done if, if you had to pick? Some of my early scratch bills and small scale, I'm still very fond of. I scratch built an M1 Abrams and an M2 Bradley back when Fine Scale Modeler first came out. In fact, my Abrams, I think, was in the first issue of Fine Scale Modeler. And that was kind of at the peak of my scratch building um, back in the early-ish, mid-ish 70s. So that one, I've uh, both of those I've really liked. And of the two of them, Bradley's actually a better model. And there's a few models I built back then that I really like. I did some half tracks that I think are pretty good. More recently, I did a few Shermans that I really like. I did an M4A1 based on the Olidolary kit with uh, tank riders in the back uh, from the Normandy campaign. I like that one. That's that's in one of my books. I've done a few uh, more recent models that I like. I, as I say, I like those Becker conversions. I've done a few of those that I really like. I can't say that there's certain models that I jump up and down about. Um, I am not, I'm a very impatient modeler and there's very few models that I spend much more than a month or a month and a half building. Um, there's a lot of people who spend a year building a model. I don't have the patience for that. I don't build any super projects. I build things that I can get done in about a month, a month and a half, but then my interest starts to wane. So I speed it up and I finish it off. So there have been the occasional models that I've spent a real lot of time on. And so those probably do um, appeal to me a little bit more. But for the last 20, 30 years, I've, I've got a limit as to how much time I'm going to put in a model. So when I look at it, it's like, oh, I could have done a better job there. You know, I kind of sped up either the painting or I sped up the construction. So I can see the faults in it. And that, that kind of uh, gives me a jaundiced view of the model. It takes some time, maybe 10 years later, I look back and say, oh, that's not bad. That's pretty good. But especially models I built recently, I know where all the flaws are. So, you know, I think, eh, you know, that's only so-so. So other than that um, glider glider that you're working on, what else? what else do you have? Do you, do you work on more than one kit at a time or are you, are you uh, 
I need to do this one and then move on to the next one. Or me personally, I have like six that I'm working on right now. I'm I'm pretty much a one model at a time person because if I do it the other way, I end up not finishing anything. I at, to be quite honest, at the moment I have only two models that are um, started. I've got that that me three twenty three, which I literally started today, and I have a project started about a year ago, um, a Polish kit of the uh, C seven P artillery tractor, which I started and installed just because it's got a tremendous amount of photo etch on the interior. And then I heard from one of the other manufacturers that they're going to do it in plastic. So I, I kind of pushed it off to one side. And um, so it's kind of half built. But but my rule of thumb is when I started, I finish it. Whether I finish it well or just speed it up and get it done, it gets done. Um, and that's reason that's one reason why I'm very careful about what I start. I've, I've got to be convinced that I've got enough enthusiasm for the project to carry it through to the completion. And that's also one reason I don't pick subjects that I know that I'll have a problem completing in a reasonable time frame. So my selection of, of um, subjects is heavy, heavily influenced on my estimation of how much time it's going to take to build. Do you have a, a like a preferred manufacturer? Uh, no, there's obviously some manufacturers that I really enjoy working with, but that doesn't limit my selection. For example, um, Tamiya, you know, big surprise. Everybody loves Tamiya because their kits go together uh, so well. Um, on the aircraft side, if I could get it to me aircraft, that's what I always pick because there's such a pleasure to put together. So if I'm building an aircraft for fun, because I do build, a lot of times I get burned out building tank models and I just want to build an aircraft just for fun. Um, and I'll almost always pick a Tamiya kit because I know it's going to go together well. It's not overly complicated. So for example, recently I picked up uh, uh, Tamiya Heinkel 219. Well, I haven't started building it, but that's going to be one of my fun builds because I know it's a good kit. I know it'll go together well. Um, you know, I don't don't have any particular need to do it. It's just I know it'll be a good build. There's other companies that I like, but they're a pain to deal with. You know, some of the newer manufacturers, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Mini Art out of Ukraine. Spectacular models, you know, but a bajillion little parts. Um, not a lot of fun to put together, especially in the early phase. So to give you an example, I had the Miniart SU-122-54, which is a 1950s uh, Soviet assault gun, which I was always interested in because it's a very mysterious vehicle. They only built about 80 or 90 of them. Really wanted to build it. So I bought the kit when it came out, started working on it. The suspension is an absolute horror. Every rocker arm, every torsion bar arm has a bajillion little parts. You don't see any of it when you finish up. On a Tamiya kit, it would be basically one part with Miniart, it's like, two dozen parts. And I just kept working and working and working on it. And I, I put it aside at one point. It was just, I got most of the suspension together and I was just so frustrated with it. I put it put it aside because I had other things I wanted to build. Um, and then I finally said, okay, I got to follow my rule. I got to finish it up. And fortunately by that stage, I was through the worst of it because their suspensions are just God awful. And then I got, got into the superstructure into the, some of the big parts and then it went together okay. So there's some people that I'll work on their kits kind of grudgingly. I mean, I know that they're beautiful kits. I know that I'll get a good result from them, but they're not fun to build just because they're needlessly complicated. Um, and then there's other companies that are somewhere in between. They're not as simple as Tamiya, but they still have a fine level of detail. On the aircraft side, next to Tamiya, the other one I really like is Airfix. The recent Airfix kits are really nice. They're, they're 48 scale and 72nd. I've built a few of those recently. Really enjoyed it. There's other ones like Hasegawa. They do nice kits, but they're usually more work than Airfix kits. On the armor side, 
the armor side, I'm more apt to be determined by the subject than by the manufacturer. If I really want to build a subject, I'll build it whether it's, you know, whoever, mini art or Ryfield models or whoever, even if it's a complicated kit, I'll build it if I really want to build the subject. From your perspective, uh, would you say that kits today are more accurate than say 20 years ago, or it's just easier to assemble, but still maintain accuracy issues? I, I think they're definitely more accurate. I've been mildly involved in some research work for model companies over the years, and some of the new technologies just make it a lot easier for the model kit manufacturers. Uh, as you probably know, a number of companies are using laser scanning, um, where they can go to a museum and basically laser scan the subject. And so you know, instead of going out there with a tape measure, back in the old days for my books, I used to actually go out and tape measure tanks for my books to do scale plans that went into the books. And so I know the pitfalls of doing that kind of measuring. It's very, very difficult, very time-consuming to do. So some of the new technologies like laser scanning are not only more accurate, but they're easier and cheaper to do. So I think that that gives model uh, kit companies more temptation to do some subjects because they know if there's a museum uh, exhibit that they can go and scan, they can really simplify it. And I think that's something else that most modelers probably don't realize. There, there's a cottage industry of people who put together data packages for the model companies. And this is especially true in Asia, where you'll get these guys who go out and put together a 3D package on a particular tank. And then they'll go to the, um, they'll go to the various manufacturers and say, I've got a data package on, um, you know, the, the, the T-34 tank or the Sherman tank. And they'll say, you know, you know, give me 10 grand or whatever they, I don't know what they sell it for, but the, whatever sum of money it is, they'll sell them this data package. So, you know, if everybody's wondering, well, why all of a sudden do we get 15 Panther tank kits or worse yet, some, you know, obscure prototype tank? Why suddenly do we have three kits of some really weird tank? Well, the reason is, is that unlike the old days, it's not only the kit manufacturers that are doing the, um, the, the basic work on uh, doing the research. There's actually freelancers who are going out there and putting together uh, research packages. So that's kind of accelerated the whole thing. And then, of course, on the model kit side, the method of making molds has changed completely because of 3D machining. It's just so much cheaper to do a mold. So the investment to do a, a hobby kit these days is so much lower than it was back in the old days. So uh, to answer your original question, yeah, accuracy-wise, yes, they are definitely better. And number two, we're getting more kits because it's easier to do the research, because the technology has changed and it's allowed the manufacturers to more economically research the subjects. What would you say to a young aspiring historian or modeler to encourage their interest in history and the hobby? I really can't think of anything I could tell them. Um, I, you know, a lot of people, I know especially IPMS, they're always making this big deal. Oh, we got to interest the younger generation. And I don't really think that that's possible. It's got to be somewhat uh, self-motivated, or at least my experience is it has to be somewhat self-motivated. I think that a lot of modelers get into it maybe because of family influence. I mean, there are some modelers who grew up in a household where the parents did models, riff on models, some kind of hobby-related stuff. And But in my family, it wasn't. My dad had absolutely no interest. I used to rope him in to help me with my models when I was a kid. He had no interest. He, he really didn't like building uh, uh, models. Uh, my mom was not at all in, into hobby stuff. Women at that time had no interest in plastic models. But I was interested in military history from, you know, talking to people and reading books and seeing TV shows. And so I think a lot of it is self-motivated. I think that 
the thing that organizations like IPMS and AMPS and other organizations like that can do is that once modelers enter the sphere of the clubs and things like that, you can certainly encourage young modelers, you know, you know, try to give them positive reflections on their craft and, you know, try to encourage them to go along. But I know from personal experience and from having been in various hobby clubs over the years in many locations in the United States, up in upstate New York and down in Connecticut and now here in Maryland, what typically happens is that you get young teenagers who come in who are inspired by books or movies or War Thunder or, you know, video games or whatever. And they're in the hobby until their early 20s. Then they go to school and then they get involved in families and stuff and they drop out of the hobby. Um, and then they get, you know, they have children and then they come back to the hobby when they're 40 or 50. And I, I see that in a lot of clubs. I mean, I'm not saying there's no hobbyists in the 20s and 30s, but you tend to have these clusters in the, you know, the young teens and then people who are in their 40s, 50s who've already had families and now the kids are in college and now they have more free time on their hands because the hobby does take up time. So yeah, you can inspire. I think it helps to inspire the kids, although you got to be aware of the fact that they'll probably drop out of the hobby. And then you can inspire the adults when they try to get back into the hobby. I mean, I see that happen all the time. I was just at an IPMS Baltimore meeting a week ago and a couple of guys came in and they had been in the hobby back in the day. And then, you know, family affairs and stuff just got them out of the hobby. And now they're coming back in and they were talking to people about, oh, I want to get into this. You know, I built this when I was younger. You know, what about this? You know, what kits are good? I want to build this. So, yeah, I think we can help inspire other modelers, but I th- it has to start with some self-inspiration. You've got to, you got to have somebody out there who got involved in aircraft or tanks or model cars or whatever for some other reason. And then at that stage, maybe you can make them a little bit more, I don't want to use the word professional, that's an overused term, but you can try to inspire their craftsmanship. And I think that's something that clubs can do very well. And the internet can do it to some extent. I mean, you know, Facebook and other, you know, social media, they can help a bit, but that's a dodgy proposition because everybody knows social media can be hell more than heaven. So, um, you know, it, it, it just depends on the group and, you know, the personality of the people involved. So I have a question for you. Why do you think that we don't have a good kit of a DD Sherman yet? It's such a historically important version of that vehicle. Um, I think that the reason is partly technical. The problem with the DD Sherman is that the manufacturer to start out with, because I, I actually tried to encourage Dragon, you know, DML to do one because they were doing Shermans at the time. And they couldn't decide whether they want to do it with the skirts down or the skirts up. And my answer to that was, well, you do both. You do one kit of the model with the skirts down because you have to mold the skirts down and that affects a lot of the other parts of the model. Then you do one with the skirts up. And then they were complaining, well, it's hard to do. There's Skirts are fabric. They're not like machine parts and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So in any event, so they never did it. I was trying to encourage them. You know, I was saying, you know, some of the material that they were experimenting with that, that kind of soft vinyl-y sort of stuff, I... I try to convince them that that would actually work very well for the skirts, but that didn't work. So um, bottom line is, I, I don't know. I mean, there's so many Sherman kits out there. It really has surprised me. I think that part of the reason may be that um, people shy away from it because there's really only one good surviving D.D. Sherman, the one that's over at Bovington, and that's a, a specific configuration. Uh, what people maybe don't realize is there were British-built D.D.s and American-built ones, and the details between them are not identical. They're very similar. And I think that so, so I think that some of the model companies will have a hard time researching them. In fact, the research material is out there. I mean, I know because I have the stuff. So I think it's a difficult subject. I think that's why it hasn't been done. 
I've built one. Um, I, I built one back on the 75th anniversary. I used the ResiCast resin DD to do a US one from uh, Omaha Beach. But it, it's a tough project. It's a it's a complicated vehicle. It would be complicated for a model company to do. But they've certainly done other vehicles that are equally difficult to do as model subjects and on much more obscure subjects. So I would think that they could certainly do it. I think they maybe need the inspiration. I, you know, I don't know. It's it's hard to predict what model companies are going to do. As, as I say, I've been involved with a few model companies. I've tried to convince them to do certain things. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you wonder why they do one thing versus another. Um, sometimes I tell them, no, nah, that subject won't sell. And then it sells a bajillion models. Um, so I, I just don't know. It's it, it's 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 a gigantic crapshoot. You just it's hard to tell what the market is going to be enthused about. Well, building on that, are there uh, other vehicles that you feel like from your perspective have been kind of overlooked that you think we, you know, hopefully we'll see kits of in the future? Um, there are some things I would certainly like to see. Um, some are just minor things like um, AFE Club has promised us an M8 Howitzer motor carriage, you know, the 75 millimeter Howitzer on the M5 Stewart chassis. That's an obvious one because they already have, you know, the hull, you know, they just have to do the other parts. To me, it did it, but to me, his old M8 is horrible. You know, that's an obvious one to do. The other one that's really surprised me that no one has done is the uh, the weasel, either the uh, M29 or the M29C weasel. It's a common vehicle in the U.S. Army in World War II. It makes a, a nice little model. I've I built resin versions of them. It's a it's a nice little model. It's tiny. You can do all sorts of diorama stuff with it. Otherwise, World War II U.S. is pretty well covered. Um, there's obscure stuff they could do, you know, the Marmon Harrington light tanks, but those are really obscure. You know, I'm not jump. I scratched about one years ago, but I'm not jumping up and down, you know, telling people we need one of those. You know, there's other things. I'm hoping that Tamiya will continue to do the French 1940 subjects because they've done such a nice job. They they most recently did the Reno 35, which I thought was a wonderful kit. The one I really hope they do is I hope they do the Hotchkiss 38, 39, partly because I like the the German conversions off that, although quite honestly, I've built most of them already. But um, a Hotchkiss from Tamiya would be nice. It would fill out their French range, and there's a lot of really great color schemes for it. There's a lot of great German conversion uh, possibilities there. On the German side, you know, same thing. Most of that stuff has been covered to death. I mean, how many more Panthers and Tigers can we can we <laughs> see? And you know, even down into the weeds, Panzer ones and Panzer twos were pretty well covered with all of the standard stuff. Panzer threes, we've got good selection. Panzer fours, we do. Yeah, there's some wacky prototypes. There's some conversions and stuff that there's no kits, but you're starting to get down into the weeds. E- even on the artillery side, the German side has been very, very well covered. On the artillery side, some U.S. stuff could be better covered. Um, we still don't have a U.S. 90 millimeter anti-aircraft gun. That'd be nice to have. Um, we don't have some of the pack howitzers in plastic. Those would be nice. Modern, I'm not even going to touch because I don't build very much modern, but modern Lately, we're pretty well covered. I mean, Abrams is well covered, and M60 is reasonably well covered. M48 is reasonably well covered. Um, Leopards, there's plenty of Leopard kits out there. On the Soviet side, or Russian side, you know, right down to the most recent thing, the Armada, we've got kits. We've got plenty of T55s. Uh, There's a new Zvezda T62 coming out, so we'll have that covered. So um, there's nothing, you know, I'm sure that once I get off this interview, I'll suddenly think, oh, I should mention that. That would be a great kit that I really, really want. But, um, you know, I I can't, you know, there's, I'll I'll give you some examples. I'm hoping that some of the resin guys do a few more of the World War I armored cars. I I sort of like World War I armored cars. But uh, Cooper State Models doing some really nice ones. Um, If I want to give them any hints, do some more American ones. Um, I'd like to see um, armored motor car number one and two, the 
the Jeffries and the White. I scratch built the 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 White already, um, but the Jeffries would be nice. Um, there's some other World War One armored cars that would be nice to see. I would like to see them do um, uh, the Garford. I've already scratch built one, but that would be a nice. Uh, they actually sort of hinted that they're going to do the Garford, but that would be nice. So, but those are obscure. I mean, there you're talking about vehicles where you know only a few dozen were built. Um, but as far as the tanks themselves are concerned, we've got a Schneider, uh, Sanchemont, and an FT on the French side. We've got most of the British tanks. We've got V1 and only German World War One tanks. So we're pretty well covered there. So it's it's pretty hard to to point out really obvious stuff to do. It's more like you know it'd be nice if they did this version, or it'd be nice if they did that conversion. But we've, you know, you can't complain these days. We've got so many kits on so many good subjects. Yeah, some modern upgraded versions of some of the American tank destroyers, you know, the M36s and a, and a good M18. And then also Italian armor seems to be uh, not very well represented as well in kit form. Yeah, the M18, I, I should have I thought of that. The M18 is probably, if I was going to single out any... U.S. World War II subject that really needs a decent kit. It's the M18 because there's there's two kits out already, and both of them stink. Um, both yeah. of them have real serious dimensional problems, and it's a very attractive vehicle. It makes a really nice model because you have that open turret. There's plenty of detail, so yeah, that'd be an obvious one. M18 would be a good one. A better M36. The only advantage with M36 is that you've got some halfway decent turrets and some halfway decent hulls. But yeah, a new M36 would be useful. The Italian stuff surprisingly is. I think a little bit better cover than people realize if you go for the aftermarket stuff. The old Italeri M1340, M1441 is actually a reasonably decent kit. It's not state-of-the-art as far as putting it together. It's more old-fashioned as far as putting it together. But if you throw in the newer Tamiya tracks that are out there, it's pretty good. And then Italeri has come out with a newer Semiveni with a lengthened hull. I haven't built that yet, but I, I do plan on building a Semiveni. And there's a lot of good aftermarket their L6 um, is pretty decent. I built the sum of any version. I thought that was decent. There's a good L3. There's an okay P40. So there's a fair amount of stuff out there. There's a decent Sahariana. Most of the Italian stuff, big surprise, has been done by Italeri. And so it rises or falls on the strength of Italeri as a model company. They're not the top of the line. They're, you know, they're more the the B-level stuff, not the A-level stuff. But they're usually high B-level stuff. Usually for the Italian stuff, they go out of their way to do a better than average job. And so their Italian World War II stuff has generally been pretty good. It's not to me, it's not, you know, mini art, but it's still, you know, it's it, it's still doable. I, I don't mind doing it Larry stuff with a bit of aftermarket. I think it can get some really nice models out of that because I built most of the, um, the Larry Italian stuff at one point or the other. I wanted to talk maybe about a, a few of your pieces that I, I, re- I mean, they're all good, but I, there's some that I really admire. Um, we talked about the DD tank uh, that you did, um, but also what about your 172nd scale LCA? Uh, the LCA was one of those projects that was um, inspired by a book. And what it specifically was is that, um, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, I did a book last year, or actually early this year, that'll be out next year on the Battle at Point du Hoc, the Rangers climbing the cliffs at Point du Hoc. And as I was doing the research on the book, I started getting involved in, well, what did the landing craft that landed the Rangers actually look like? They used LCAs, which is a British-built landing craft, not the more familiar Higgins boats, the LCVPs. We've got some pretty good kits of the LC, LCVPs. We don't have much in the way of LCA kits. But it wasn't simply that we don't have a good LCA kit. It was also that 
the Ranger uh, LCAs were converted. They had a, a secret program called uh, Project Scam, and they mounted uh, grapnel hooks on the um, on the uh, bulwarks of the the uh, craft, so they could launch grapnel hooks up on top of the cliff and drop ropes down, so that the range it helped the Rangers get up the cliffs faster. And I realized that there aren't very many good photos of these craft because it was very hush hush top secret when it happened. So actually, most of my references come from a couple of training videos or training films that were done uh, of the Rangers using these boats. But there's no good still photos. So here I was doing the book. I wanted to include a photo in the book showing what one of these Ranger-modified LCAs looked like. So it suddenly occurred to me, well, I could do my usual thing and do up a model that shows what a Ranger LCA would look like. So then the issue came down to, am I going to build it in 35th scale or am I going to build it in 72nd scale? And I decided to go in 72nd scale because the level of detail I have on the Ranger uh, landing craft is not good enough to do a good 35th scale model. Um, I've got decent stuff, but I don't have great stuff. So I figured 72nd, I don't want to say you can fudge it, but the level of detail in 72nd is not as demanding as what it is in 35th. And the other issue is I knew I was going to have to scratch build a lot of this, and it's obviously going to be easier and quicker to scratch build it in 72nd than in 35th. The kit selection in both skills is rough. They're mostly these limited run uh, kits out of France. Um, I forget even the, the brand, Armageddon or Mach 2 or one of those brands has out a, a plastic one in 35th and one in 72nd. So I got the 72nd scale one, and basically all I could use is the hull. And even that I had to substantially redo. And then everything else had to be scratch built. But it's small. You know, the model's six or seven inches long. And it, so it took some scratch building. But it was, you know, I comfortably did it within a few weeks of work. It was a fun, fun project. It's completely different than most of the things I build. I was satisfied with the end product, which was basically to do an illustration that showed what a Ranger LCA looked like. So it served its purpose. It was this, That was a case where it was done more as a piece of art reference than as a, a hobby project for the sake of doing a hobby project. And on a kind of related note, your LCT 535 for the Vierville sector at Omaha Beach? That was done. Um, I'm a big D-Day fan, you know, written a lot of D-Day books and, you know, have personal connections with Omaha Beach. That was done uh, partly because it was the 75th anniversary of D-Day and I wanted to do some, D- some D-Day stuff. I was doing the, um, the D-D tank and when I was getting involved in that whole thing, I was also writing an academic article, which most people won't have seen, but I, I did a, um, I did an article for Journal of Military History, which is the, um, the academic journal associated with Society for Military History. I was doing an article on, um, the controversy about why the alleged contra- or the alleged myth that the U.S. Army refused to use armored funnies on Omaha Beach, which is a lot of baloney, but I want, I did an academic article on it so I could footnote it and show people what the real story was. But in any event, as I was doing that article, I was saying, you know, I, I need to know a little bit more about LCTs and how they landed the tanks at Omaha Beach because the actual amount of published information on that is not very good. I had a lot of material from U.S. Navy files about the specific landing craft, what units they were landing, you know, and how they did it. And I thought, boy, this make an interesting model. And the project started out um, in the years ago, I bought the old Heller, I think it's one four hundred scale LCT-6. And I thought, oh, okay, that, that I'll start with that, and I'll just re-detail it and do a, a D-Day LCT-6 off the Heller kit. So I got the Heller kit out, and I started working on it, and it's god-awful. I mean, it is truly awful in a way that only Heller can do. Um, and, you know, so the more I, so I'm, I'm building, and then I'm thinking, oh, now I have to scratch pull a 1-400 scale Sherman. 
And so I went up on eBay, and I don't know why I thought about it, but I thought, well, I can't find a Sherman in one four hundredth, but maybe there's one in one three fiftieth. And so then I found out that not only was there a Sherman available in one three fiftieth, but that a, a French company called, um, I think their name is uh, Black Cat, they did both an LCT 5A and an LCT 6. And those are the two different types of LCTs that are used at Omaha Beach, one for DDs and one for deep weighting tanks. And um, they're doing this all high tech. It's all 3D printing and um, masters done by 3D CAD CAM. So I ordered the um, I ordered both craft from uh, from Black Hat. Spectacularly nice kits. If you like one three fiftieth, um, they're just absolutely wonderful kits. Photo etch, three D printed parts, uh, beautiful resin casting, just really wonderful to work with. And there were um, there's a few one three fiftieth scale Shermans out there. Um, there are some DDs, but they're not very accurate. So I converted my own DDs and then cast up a few. And the weighting Shermans are easy to do because if you get some Shermans, you just do the weighting trunks and, and one three fiftieth. That's no big deal because they're so tiny. So that got started originally as a plan to upgrade the Heller kit. Then that got rejected. Then once I found out that this, because I'm not much of a shipbuilder, I was not aware of Black Hat. But then once I was aware of Black Hat, then suddenly made the job a lot easier and a lot more fun. And the other reason that I did it is that I wanted to play around with sea bases based on an article that appeared in Fine Scale Modeler back four or five years ago. And I don't know the modeler's name, but it's an American modeler who does ship models and does these. His ship's models are nice, but his bases are spectacularly nice. The way he was creating the wave effects and everything using styrofoam and other techniques really impressed me. And I said, I really want to play with that technique um, and see how it works. That was the second incentive to do that landing craft thing. I wanted to play with that technique. And so I did that. I was very happy with the results. And I've been playing with those sea techniques two more times. I did USS Satterley, a U.S. Gleaves class destroyer. And more recently, I did a uh, French uh, pre-World War I uh, torpedo boat destroyer. And I've been trying new techniques on water effects with each of those models. And I've got a couple more ship models um, in, you know, sitting on the shelf ready to start you know, to use those water effects. Because I've enjoyed the diorama aspect of the model almost as much as the, the ship models themselves. Well, Steve, we, we could do this all day, just sit here and talk about each <laughs> one of your models, but we want to be respectful of your time, especially because you told us that today is a hobby day, and so we don't want to keep you from your bench. Thank you so much for coming and talking with us about your work and your, just your immense contributions to the hobby and to history and, and all the related uh, subjects that you've done. Well, happy to talk to you. Well, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it. Okay. All right. Take care. Awesome. Well, that was a terrific interview. We really enjoyed talking with Steve and I hope you guys liked it as well. So before we kind of wrap things up, I just wanted to say, uh, first of all, Ivan, thank you for staying up until the wee hours of the morning to record with us. Thank you. I would rather be nowhere else. I'm not tired. That made no sense. <laughs> and welcome to the posse. And Whitey, thanks so much for joining us. It was awesome hanging out with you in Vegas. And thanks for hopping on and uh, talking with us. Tonight. Hey, thanks again for the invite. Uh, great 
great sitting here and talking with you guys again. Uh, it was fantastic meeting you guys out there in Vegas. Ivan, looking forward to meeting you out in Omaha and hanging out with you fellas again. We're all definitely planning on heading that way in July. So uh, hope to see you guys there. It'll be great. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Scott. You know, you can leave us feedback, listeners, about this or any of our other episodes over at our Facebook page, or you can email us directly at plasticpossepodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our Posse supporters once again. None of this is possible without you. We really appreciate our two awesome sponsors as well, Tankcraft and Sean's Custom Model Tools. And remember, there is no wrong way to enjoy this hobby. Please share your work. We'd love to see it. and Have a wonderful day. Thanks again for joining us for episode 29. We'll be back in two weeks with another exclusive interview, as well as our regular segments and more awesome content about scale modeling, the hobby that we love so much. Until then, yeah! Oh, All right. Right. Hey. Woo! I had to tell everyone, nice to job, tell everyone right? in my house, if you hear me scream yee-haw at three in the morning, <laughs> <laughs> don't make <wait laughs> consent. <laughs> You're an American. Uh, We're going to get you one of them blue passports, you know. That was good stuff. Fried chicken, Coca-Cola. I want to talk about something very, very important to me. From the time this episode drops, we are less than one month from the NHL season opener. Oh. Just had to drop that on y'all. I know. Thank goodness. It's all about modeling, right? <laughs> but let's have some hockey. Please, let's have some hockey. Who's your team, Doug? Who, who do you follow? Uh, the Blackhawks. Black, Blackhawks, right? Okay, yeah. Yep. I lived I lived in the Chicago area for about two and a half years. Okay. And so they kinda, I kind of attached myself to most of their teams. It's the Penguins for me, but I was just talking to my wife actually today. We're probably going to split season tickets for the Avs with some friends of hers because the Av tickets are cheap because no one goes to see them out here. Yes. <laughs> the, that arena is almost always empty. That's great. But then when the Pens come to town, there you go. That's right. Yeah. I like any kind of hockey. So I'll, I'll literally I'll go watch any game. I don't really care. Whitey, <laughs> <laughs> do you have a team? Are you a Boston? Yeah, I'm Boston a Bruins fan. fan. Yeah, there you go. Absolutely. I think you've mentioned it on your on on Model Geeks before. So probably. I mean, and when it comes, you know, now that football season is just, you know, as we sit here and record tonight's game one, you know, of the seat, and I'll I'll watch NFL, but you know, being from the Boston area, you know, oh man, you're you know, and if you live in the South, football is of course, you know, front and center, and I'm like, you know, yeah, I'm a I'm a Patriots fan, sure, but. Really, you know, when it comes to Boston sports, it's, it's hockey first, you know, and that's that's pretty much my gauge. Whenever I meet someone from who says they're from Boston, I go, oh, yeah, you're a Bruins fan. No, not really. And I'm like, ah, you sure you're from Boston? Then, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You know, I love it. I said, well, the EPL is about to start, right? I mean, <laughs>
I'm just I'm just mm. sit here enjoying the conversation. <laughs> I'm I'm with you, Ivan. I'm not a hockey guy, so don't worry, Ivan. When you come over next July, we are going to indoctrinate you. You're yeah. going to burn your red coat, pledge yeah, allegiance <laughs> to the flag, and join the rebels. Join the revolution. <laughs> I, I, uh, I look forward to it. 